Guitar Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and attack. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. A.L. Levy here. I just want to apologize about the weird mic quality for me. I'm quarantining right now, uh, so I'm using the laptop mic, and uh, it sounds a little bit different, but uh, you guys will survive. Anyways... Our guest today is Jake Bowen, who is a guitar player and songwriter in the Grammy-nominated metal giant's Periphery. You know exactly who he is. Let's get into it. I introduce you, Jake Bowen. All right, Jake Bowen, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hey, how you doing? Good. Very good. How are you? I'm good. I mean, I've been trapped inside the house for a few months. Well, most of the year, but uh, <laughs> trying to make the best of it. <laughs> good to see you, Jake. It's been a while. Likewise, John. Yeah. When's the last time we saw each other in uh, South America? Is that it? Yeah, it would have been. Yeah. So that was what, Chile? Yeah. Yeah. Was it Santiago. two years ago at this point? It feels like it was yesterday. It was one year ago. Yeah. It was last summer. Oh, okay. That was a fun old time. Good to see you again. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it was uh, it was really fun in um, in Chile and Mexico and Bogota, Colombia, wasn't it? That was what we did. Yeah. Yeah. That was... Uh, and, and there were like some dates that, that you guys didn't come with us too right is that did that did that happen on that tour yeah we were doing a tour at the same time so we joined for those three shows and then also did the chaos that is brazil and argentina yeah 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 that was that was a fun (laughs) little run it was it was great to hang with you guys down there yeah it was too and it's been years before that wasn't it It was like probably like three or four years since we saw each other before that yeah it was a pretty long time and then like prior to that we we saw each other all the time i mean you filled in (laughs) on guitar for me at one point you stayed yeah. at my house. Yes, and you introduced me to Cheesecake Factory, which uh, <laughs> is why I look how I do now. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that place is... Uh, we can't go there now because of the Rona, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a place you go to if you're trying to hate your body. So let me, <laughs> let me ask you a question about Cheesecake Factory. How do you think it's possible that they have so many items on the menu? Because <laughs> it's ridiculous. If I'm going to give like a serious answer, I think they have so many like deals with distribution networks for food that it's like not hard for them to do that. But whenever I open that menu, I mean, I don't go there a lot, especially because I don't live across the street anymore from it. Like uh, when (laughs) when John was coming over. But that's um, dangerous. Yeah, it was it was it was in a mall right across the street from my house. It was too convenient. But, you know, whenever I open that menu, I'm just like, man. I don't want to look at all this. Like, give me three choices because it's totally option paralysis. And I don't, you know, it's it's kind of cool, but it's too much. And then they put like the the calorie counts next to everything. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God. Dude. Like, I don't, 
It's like the Oreo cheesecake and you just look at it and it's like, ah, yeah, that's my entire intake of calories today. Yeah. Or for the week, like I'll, I'll look at it and be like, well, I can't eat anything for the rest of the week. So I better enjoy this. I better eat it slow. I think it's possible to go there, have a full meal and take down like 5,000 calories. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> easily. And then, you know, if you're drinking, like you have that too, you know, cause who doesn't want a, a tall, cold glass of beer with their chicken piccata and then browning <laughs> it off with some, uh, peanut butter cup, double chocolate <laughs> cheesecake. <laughs> Man, I read that Thanksgiving dinner is on average 4,500 calories. Oh, my God. Yeah, but that's not counting leftovers. (laughs) So basically, people are eating about 4,500 to 5,000 calories a day for like four or five days straight. It's insane. This explains America perfectly, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to a degree, but like, I don't think I don't think most people eat that many calories on a regular basis. No, it's literally just for Thanksgiving and Christmas and stuff like that, right? Even in America, it's hard to. It's hard to eat that many calories a day, even in America, but... uh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a shit ton. So, you know, a pound is 3,500, and you burn, like, say, 2,000 in a day. So you can see how, like, eating one Thanksgiving meal is not a big deal. But, like, if you eat them for five days straight, like everybody does, that's when it becomes a big deal. Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny you bring that up because, obviously, with the, the way things are this year, it was just me and my mom for Thanksgiving. We canceled, like, the family gathering. And so, you know, we had our dinner, and, yeah, I was full. And then the next day, I went over to her house, and I grabbed leftovers, and then I had those. And then I'm just like, all right, this is the last day I can do this. And then my mom, like, is, she's obviously feeling the same way about it. She keeps, like, calling me. She's like, can you come up and can you come over and pick up these leftovers? She's, like, trying to pawn off all of this <laughs> extra food that she know that she knows is going to, like, she's going to eat onto me. And I'm just like, <laughs> no, that's, that's, you're going to have to, like, donate it or something because I am not doing, I can't do three days in a row of that stuff. It's crazy. Does it make you feel like shit or do you gain weight or what is it? It's guilt. Yeah. You don't want the torture. Yeah, because it's just like I don't have like body issues or like a eating disorder or anything like that, but I just feel like kind of weird about it like after a while. And I've spent like especially with like touring and like what that does to you physically, it's kind of like I've come home and I'm just like, all right, I really got to start taking this serious. I'm like 37 years old and it's just like it just gets harder and harder to, to eat right. So I'm constantly thinking about that. And that's really what kind of puts me off of uh you know, Thanksgiving leftovers. And, you know, I've just, I'm one of those people that just like, every time I take something out of the cabinet, I think about the guilt behind it rather than just, I've just taken all the joy out of food. And it's, it's a pretty sad place to be. I hope that it's just a phase. (laughs) Well, which aspect of touring? Is it just everything put together? Like the travel plus the shitty food plus alcohol plus... It's the bread and cheese. It's the bread and cheese, 100. percent It's that it's that goddamn after show pizza that everybody wants and and no one asked for, but everybody wants it because the tour manager's smart and he's like, you know what, these guys are gonna be hungry after the show. I better make sure that there's some pizza. And like every day after I've spent like you know an hour and twenty minutes drinking wine on stage, I don't even like take a shower before I already have that first slice of pizza in my mouth. <laughs> So it's really like that shit. Cause then like, you know, I don't stay up that late after the show's over. I just go 
you know, I go to bed. So I go to bed with like two or three slices of pizza in here and like the wine. And then I just wake up just feeling like a cadaver. So <laughs> do that for 45 days. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, that's re I really think that's what it is because in the morning I'll wake up and I'm part of what in periphery we call the breakfast crew. And it's like, it's me and, and Matt Halpern and uh, some of the crew guys, it, our crew changes up a little bit, so I don't want to miss any names, but um, but it's usually just the early risers. And we, you know, we have like a, a separate group chat from the, the, like aside from the tour chat where we just kind of, you know, send our favorite brunch spots. And then we go and we have like legitimate meals and, and a lot of us eat healthy and, and it's everything. But it's like at the end of the night after we've been drinking and, and we, then we eat the pizza, that's really what's I feel like taking years off of all of our lives. Do you get any of the sleep deprivation or any of that side of it? Not usually. I, I'm actually kind of like the envy of some some of the guys in my band in terms of like where I can fall asleep. Like I'll just like <laughs> I'll catch like cat naps in like backstage, maybe like an hour before we go on stage and everyone's like, you know, listening to loud music or talking loudly or we have guests back there and I'm just like passed out. And they're like, what's his problem? And he's like, oh, he's just taking a nap. <laughs> How? I don't know. I just I'm good at sleeping. I think it's because I started touring when I was pretty young and I got like I got really used to it. Um, but I'm just a sleepy guy. I'm like, I'm the sleepiest guy. I'm, I, you know. Except for when you're in airports, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I I, I, I I definitely listen to that segment. Yeah, on, so let's um, talk about that. <laughs> getting right into the hard news. I like it. <laughs> well, well they, told, they told me, didn't he say not to bring it up or something? Kind of, yeah, but I think he was just joking. I mean, everyone gets angry in an airport. Oh, no, we can totally talk about it. You know, it's the everlasting saga of Jake Bowen and his problem with authority figures. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what it is? No, no. I mean, sort of. You know, it's not because, like, I don't, I don't get like that because, like, I have this, like, insecure, like, small man syndrome. I'm, like, I'm a little, I'm on the short side. Like, it's not that. It's what it is is, like, growing up, I always kind of sensed that, like, People in positions of power, they like to take advantage of people who don't push back. And I always felt like it was like that in an airport because it's like when you pay, not only are you paying like this stupid amount of money to fly, I think like plane tickets are really expensive. Like I think what you're getting for the value is just, it's such a terrible exchange, but we're okay with it because it's such a convenience. But I think the thing that really grinds my gears about going to the airport is that there's no standard. There's no there's no consistency. You can't count on everything being the same exact way upon your return. So, you know, we'll get there and we'll have all our gear. We fly with all our gear. It's 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 kind of like it's a cool thing, but it's also an enormous pain in the ass. So and for people who don't know, you have to budget for that. Yeah, they don't just let you take on all that extra shit. And it can be wildly expensive. Wild. Yes, thousands. Yeah, I mean, you guys you guys are well aware of this. And, you know, a lot of people might not know that, but it's like what bands have started doing is kind of, you know, when we get offers from other countries to come play, we're like, okay, like, you know, this looks good, but we need to have a budget for baggage fees because, you know, coming over there, it's going to, you know, it's going to cut off a lot of like what we stand to make from this. And there have been times in the past where like we were either in the red or we just barely broke even. And it's just like, you know, 
as much as we love playing music, this isn't a charity. Like we need to go there, work and and make the money that we, you know, that we set out to make to to do this job. And so, you know, going to the airport, we'd find that sometimes it was like it was either a breeze and they were like super helpful and they didn't charge us for overweight items, which is a separate charge from from just like regular baggage fees, additional baggage fees. I noticed that like I would hang back a lot in the in, in the very early days and kind of let some of the other guys handle it. And then I noticed that like because some some of the other guys didn't have like the they're just too nice, you know, and and if they see there's going to be no pushback, they're just going to charge you. You know, they don't care. They're not thinking about our budget or anything. Why would they? They're their own business. And so I realized I'm like, ah, oh, man, I'm going to have to, you know, I, we can't we can't <laughs> we can't lose money like working, you know, otherwise there's no point yeah. in being here. Like, I don't want to I don't want to go through immigration and customs to lose money. So I just kind of like, you know, I would go up to the counter with them. It's like you paying to for the opportunity to go through customs. Exactly, <laughs> and, and and you know, and you know these jackasses who are handling your uh, your baggage are chucking them around, and like you know, everybody has a uh, you know the airport broke my guitar story, or like yep. they lost our shit, and it's just like you know, I already know that that's the level of service I'm going to get. So I just started kind of going <laughs> up to the counter with the with the tour manager and and whoever else was helping, and. You know, once I start to sense that, like, they're trying to, like, to give us uh, trouble, then I kind of step in and I get real rigid and I'm not a very nice guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Underst <laughs> Understandable. I mean, it, when we came back from South America and we they gave us this overcharge fee, that which I think was about two to three thousand dollars. Oh, my God. Right. Jesus, and dude. the best part of it was is that they wouldn't accept anything other than a credit card. Yeah, and none of us. Cash. Yeah, well, we didn't have cash, but we had money on a card. It just wasn't a credit card. It was like a, you know, for you guys, checking account, I guess. Debit card. Oh, a debit card. Yeah. Yeah, debit card. Yeah. So, and they wouldn't accept debit. It had to physically be a credit card. And none of us had a credit card. Oh my God. What did you do? Uh, luckily, our sound guy stepped in, Dave Billings. But like, we shouldn't have to ask Dave to use his own personal credit card to do something like that. You know, we had the money in an account. It's just crazy that you have to go you have to bend over backwards for something that you've paid for yeah i mean you have the currency you have the access to the currency and it's just like that you know like requiring like a lot of people don't still don't have credit cards it's not like a it's not a ubiquitous thing yet i mean it is in some places but not everywhere especially if you're a musician as well like you know you don't earn much money imagine you know getting accepted for it in the early days it's just not it wasn't on the cards. A three to five thousand dollar credit line is a high credit line. I mean, let's be real here. And so, yeah, that's that's you know, you shouldn't be subjected to that, especially since like you're traveling, you're carrying all your stuff around, you're like kind of running a mobile business. It's it's just it's it's too is much. It making you angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The part that got that gets me because uh, I I'm actually pretty chill when it comes to lots of things like these, but the part that gets me is that the rules change on the same airline depending on where you're going so you one way could be zero charges for anything like if you consolidate perfectly or very few but then on the way back like say you go to europe on the way back the rules are completely different and you get charged like eight times as much and uh they don't really care if you push back in some parts of europe 
Like, uh, yeah, they're they, used to they, it. They, they, yeah, they got that prison guard mentality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> like, stonewall you, and then that's yeah. it. You're, you're finished. Yeah, not possible. I actually remember uh, when we were at Newark Airport. Was it Newark? No, it wasn't Newark. Might have been Newark. What's the other one in New York? There's JFK, and is it is it Newark? LaGuardia. Yeah, and um, we taped our guitars together, and the person behind the counter cut them so they weren't <laughs> taped together anymore. So then you got to pay for those separately, and it's like so... If I've got individual boxes in my suitcase, are you going to take all of them out? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just insane like that they did that. Well, and also like, you know, taping them together or some people cling wrap them together, like that takes a long time, you know, and like you don't bring extra of those supplies to the airport. So then they just like totally screwed your entire like intention. That seems dangerous though. What do you mean? Well, just but knowing how sometimes baggage gets treated and destroyed having something that's not sealed together would scare the shit out of me because if it somehow gets separated where uh what happens then well i mean have you uh have you ever seen the inside of a scott dixon case after the tsa have been with it al i mean nope. taping them together is actually the safer option why because it's like having three guitars in a massive shaker what if somehow the tape gets uh untaped or something still safer <laughs> well, no. I know you'd lose one, yeah, but it's like, one. yeah, of course, yeah. But you just tape it really well. Yeah, that's, you'd go overboard with the amount of tape. Like, I, I did that one tour and uh, it worked sort of. Like, but, you know, like, like John said, like, when you get your stuff on the other side, like, it's all mangled and weird. And with the Scott Dixon cases, which, it's it's one of those things that like there aren't too many options. Like you can either get a Scott Dixon case or you can do it like the tape way. Yeah. So what we started doing because you know it is like putting your guitars in a giant shaker is that we started like <laughs> stuffing clothes in there that we're taking on yeah. the tour, and it's terrible because it makes it a lot heavier. So yeah. then they have more of like, a, you know, we try to keep our, our guitars uh, under 50 pounds. And, you know, that's it. once you put the three guitars in there and the clothes, it's way over 50 pounds and you're paying an additional fee. Yeah. And if you notice that the TSA like takes them out of the slots to check them as well, and then they're not in the slot anymore when you get them. Yeah. And then they <laughs> fight, you find that note in there saying like, hey, we... We messed we, your shit up. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it should just say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that that's at least it would be honest. Um, I have a funny gear story. Um, this is many years ago. It's probably like about a decade ago. It was like our first time in Australia. I had borrowed um a buddy of mine's Axe Effects, like the Axe Effects Ultra. I don't know if he was like super reluctant to let me borrow it because he's a really nice guy. And um, but anyways, he's just like, Yeah, you know, if anything happens to it, just you know, guarantee it for me or whatever. And I'm like, Yeah, dude, don't worry, I will absolutely take care of this thing. And so we get through <laughs> most of the tour. <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> I know, I love foreshadowing. And so we get through the tour, everything's like it, a bunch of funny stuff happened on that tour gear wise, but we get home. Uh, it was a miserable flight home and um, we're getting off the plane finally. And I'm standing next to a window waiting to get off and I can see all the baggage coming out. And I see, I'm like, oh, look, there's my bag. I'm glad it made it. And then I notice that it's like kind of open and then it like kind of like starts tumbling down that conveyor belt. And then it like opens like, like a book. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, that's where I put my axe effects. I put that in my suitcase. And then the guy, like, he's, it like kind of makes its way to the bottom of the conveyor belt open with the axe effects just sitting right on top. And then, like, the dude kind of like, 
looks perplexed. He's like, I don't know what I should do. So like he like closes it, doesn't even try zip like zipping it back up. As he's like picking it up, like sandwiched, the axe effect slides out of the thing and like the side of it hits the 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 tarmac. And so I'm like, oh my God. I'm like losing my mind. Cause at that point, you know, I can't afford a new axe effect. That's why I borrowed my friends. But you know, <laughs> I was I was in shock. And then that from that point. Yeah, it was it was perfectly fine. It didn't even have any dings on it. Like I, I don't know exactly where it hit. I looked all over the place and I made sure it worked when I got home and it was fine. So not really sure what it hit, but um but yeah, it, it was okay. But like I, I that was like kind of like the moment that I had like my first I can never trust these guys again. Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and that must have been, a, especially seeing it, like when you see stuff in real time from the airplane, it definitely stresses you out more. I mean, we saw them chucking our bags onto the plane once. It's just a really stressful experience, isn't it? Yeah. And like, the, you're you're like, I had this like inclination to like want to bang on the window and, and I was like commenting on it and I wasn't, I don't think I was sitting next to anybody that I knew. <laughs> and so they're like, what's this? They're probably thinking like, what's this guy's problem? Why is he yelling out the window? <laughs> and you know i was just, there's nothing you can do because they're not going to hear you from that and even if they could they wouldn't care so it's just a terrible experience but getting back to like i forget who mentioned it but it's just the inconsistency of going to the airport there's no standard and i think that fills me with such an amount of rage because <laughs> i can't plan and 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 that's like you know, that's all that's that's all touring is. It's just like one big plan. And they're always this outlier that make it impossible to call it. And I think that's why I kind of go in there and I give these people, you know, a firm attitude, because if you don't, they'll just take advantage of you fully. And 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 I will say it's not always successful. Sometimes they stonewall you and they're just like they tell you to go to hell. Um, we actually had a, a really bad situation going from Australia to Singapore where um, they just wouldn't let us take all of our stuff. Um, and then it got to like, well, we can take your stuff, but it's going to be like 5000 or $6,000 or something like that. And it's just like, well, like we're not paying that. So, you know, we'll just, we'll just sit here arguing with you until you kick us out of the airport. And then finally they got, some sort of authorization from somebody to like kind of cut that fee in half. So, and, and to me, that's even worse because it's like this entire time they've been like telling us, no, 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 you can't. And then they finally like acquiesce and it's just like, it's just bullshit. It's just, it's absolute bullshit. Unless like the only thing I can think of is like, maybe it's some sort of like aviation thing where like a pilot is like, yeah, I'm not taking all of that shit. We already got like, you know, a full flight and and we're overweight as it is. No, no way. No way. Because if it was actually overweight, they wouldn't fly. True. They're not, they're not going to risk lives over overweight. Well, I meant more of like the distribution of weight because um, pretty sure, I don't know anything about flying. So, you know, I. This is just, you know, anecdotal. I, I, I'm pretty sure they have like a um, some sort of like uh, diagram of the plane and like how the the weight is distributed amongst like different types of they do luggage. So I think like maybe if like there's like a less experienced pilot doing that particular f run, then they'll be like, nah, I'm not taking that. I don't know if they can even 
do that. I don't know anything about it, but I, I, I try to give I try to give a benefit of a doubt to everything because I'm just some ignorant guitar player. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything. The one thing that's consistent is they don't want to kill you. <laughs> that's true. Yes, I, I'm and I, I I'm and glad they don't want to die. You can count on that part. I think the consistency is kept for people that go in business and first. Not always. Not always, obviously, but I think that you can you have a much better service. Obviously, well guaranteed a much better service in in that. And I've only ever done one business class flight, and it was I got off the plane not angry, so it was kind of a a different experience because that's the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm I'm like you, John. I, I I've only done like a, maybe like two or three business or first class flights and they happened by a miracle. When I got through with the flight, I'm like, that's how it should be. That's what, yep. you know, if I'm paying $700 to fly to LA, it should be like that. I shouldn't have to pay like, you know, two or $3,000 to fly like that. I think that's like- To get treated like a normal human being. Yeah, it's the bare minimum. And, you know, getting stuck in coach and having to pay for like overhead bags and, and extra bags and <laughs> getting like squat, it, like having to pay for food and, and, and booze and- and stuff like that is just like, you know, with the with the price that they're charging you, it's just outrageous. And I don't think it's ever going to change, you know. So I'm really just fighting against, a, you know, a massive wave here, you know, just because people are just complacent. They're just, the, you know, they'd rather not have to deal with the friction of fighting against it and just like, you know, take the convenience where they can. So, that, I mean, that's why we're all getting bent over. Do you consider yourself the kind of person that, is uh, pretty easygoing, go with the flow up until you feel like uh, some injustice is being committed on you or your friends and no one's doing anything about it. Yeah, that's 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 a good way to describe it. Like, I try to be as easygoing as possible. I try to give a benefit of, of a doubt to everyone because, like, I kind of, a little later in life, I, I decided that, like, I don't think that there are truly evil people like, I think they, there can be, I don't think like that's like a completely, you know, there, there are sociopaths and psychopaths and all that stuff like that. But I don't think like most people are going through life, like trying to hurt other people. I think if they do, it's because something is in their life is causing it. So I try to give like a, a benefit of a doubt to, to any like person that I encounter or anything or like, any friction that I encounter. Like I don't hold any ill will to like, you know, any previous adversaries that I've had in my life. Life or whatever, you know, I, I, I try to be like, how <laughs> show me the way. <laughs> well, the way is like kind of, I, I've spent a lot of time alone. I'm a very like isolated person. I try not to be, but it's just kind of like, it's always been my nature. I, I grew up as an only child and I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. And the friends that I did have were kind of like fair weather friends. And it, I kind of like learned to fend for myself. But then after a while, I'm like, wow, dude, you're a lonely asshole. <laughs> like you, you have to, you, you have to be nice to people and you have to like force yourself to socialize, even though it's uncomfortable and you have to like really try to understand the world. And I think like kind of just being alone and being a loner and, and kind of, uh, just realizing that, like, I guess like to put it simply is that like, I was kind of becoming the asshole I never believe that I was. And now my motto is like, be the person you think you are. Cause if you ask anybody, it's like, yo, you think you're a good person? Are you a good person? They'll be like, yeah, of course I'm a good person. And it's like, really, you know? And that's kind of, I, I want people to always be asking that question or at least 
telling themselves, you know, be the person you think you are. So if you think you're a good person and if you think like, you know, you're understanding about the world, then, um, then prove it. And that's kind of what, that's kind of like my, my mantra. And, uh, I'm not always successful. I fail a lot. I get angry a lot. But, um, <laughs> like me, <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it's, it's always a work in progress. It's almost like, you know, when you're think like something really pisses you off, it's almost like just, um, taking a step back and not reacting in the moment and actually giving it some thought, isn't it? That's kind of what you're talking about. It's like, don't be angry at the situation because it pisses you off in that moment. Actually think about it and think if it actually matters or not. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's like that's the key, and getting yeah. to that, that. That's hard. Yeah, it's, it's really super hard, hard because the thing about when you get angry is that there's this, like, almost well, it's it's an overwhelming urge to kind of give in because there's like this kind of a this catharsis associated with just getting mad and like just losing your temper, and you like want to get you want to give into it so easily, then you want to just be like, all right, I need to like not get mad and think about this because. I'm going to regret getting mad later. And it's hard to kind of get your mind into that, that place before you could, cause like getting mad is just so much easier. It's just, <laughs> and, it, and it feels good in that, like that split second. Well, it's so natural to us. Yeah. I think of it as like primates, like in, in prehistoric times, like with like femurs in their hand, like wailing each other over the head and stuff like that. <laughs> like we're not too far away from that. We like to give ourselves credit that we are, but we're still animalistic in a lot of ways. And I think like the way that modern society is very, very young in our history. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Modern civilization is only a few thousand years old. And uh, we have like, is it something like 200,000 years of modern humans with these brains, same brains as ours. Yeah, it's a it's a spark cosmically. Yeah, so we're basically we're wired to be like that to get mad, take the club, and fucking split someone's brains, which <laughs> doesn't apply in our modern world. In our modern modern world, which is like about a hundred years old, like we haven't caught up to that. Like our our brains are not evolved to these laws or rules or technology or anything that we have going around us. So these primal instincts that have actually served us very, very well for over 100,000 years just don't apply anymore. And so, well, thankfully, we're human and we can have self-awareness, but we have to make a strong, strong effort to exercise it and be able to overcome our true nature, which is to get mad and uh, and kill. Absolutely. Basically. And I think we're seeing like this weird like kind of like a uh, hybrid version of that with like social media and being online. I think like, you know, you, cause like if you go online and you go on any comment section, there's probably like <laughs> most of the people are saying like, like really like uh, antagonistic stuff and, and, and reactionary antagonistic stuff. Exactly. It's reactionary. Exactly that. And I think because as you said, like we don't, where our minds aren't quick to catch up with technology, the the technology is like outpacing us, and you know I think we're experiencing some some pretty severe growing pains with that. But damn, we got real deep. This is like <laughs> it happens. It, yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting though. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about with society was demonstrated in ancient Greece. 
in a different way. There's a lot of things that we... Well, that's that's still modern society. I guess to a degree, but we still don't follow it. No, but I'm just saying that that's still considered modern society. I guess you're right. Yeah, just not in the lot, not the modern... They didn't have I, They didn't have iPhones, but they had social structures and laws and rules and governments running water. A lot of the things that we have and stuff that our society is based on comes from then. So they're, they're not considered like prehistoric or cavemen or anything like that. That's considered a modern society. So it's not, um, it's not weird that we carry some of their ideals. We just, uh, we've got iPhones, machine guns. (laughs) Oh, machine guns and iPhones. Damn, that sounds like a a terrifying combination. Oh yeah. They did too. too. Yeah. Yeah, they did too. We're just using them to hold guns now. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I mean, it's not like they didn't have their own badass weapons. It's true, yeah. I think about guns and stuff, and I'm like, wow, we're we're such savages. Like, we just shoot each other. But then, like, I think about back then, and they're just, like, hacking each other with, like, dull objects. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty bad, too. Well, yeah, we've just become more efficient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We're a, we're a lot more efficient. Man, I mean, I don't want to get I don't want to get into a gun argument or anything like that, but I will say that uh, that's a far more humane way to go about fighting oh, yeah. people than the way they used to. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm not like anti-gun. By the way, it's not like I. I, Nor I, am I. I'm. I'm, uh, I'm more uh, like not everybody should have them. Sort of thing, you know. Like it should be a lot. Oh, he needs to go through a psychiatric them. test or something first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, like not everyone should drive a car either. Yeah. No, exactly. I, agreed. <laughs> it's just like you get you get to especially in America. It's just you know you're not going to take them away. Like it's just they're 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 not going anywhere. So it's no. like we could either be realistic about this and kind of meet in the middle somewhere. But yeah, let's let's not go into a big gun thing because that, that that could be the whole podcast it could be i've actually got a funny story about guns though because i i'm from england and they've been ba- well handguns have been banned since the 90s now you guys just picked a less efficient way to kill each other knives <laughs> we just use words now you know no man london has the highest uh london has a higher murder rate than new york and you guys do it with knives yeah knives Damn, exactly you outpace new york that's where i'm from yeah, they fucking outpaced New York with knives. <laughs> I would way rather get shot in the head than fucking stabbed. Oh, my God. Death. But uh, just saying. All right, go on. So, yeah, I went to Cambodia in 2016. And we were in the capital, Phnom Penh. And, you know, everyone's asking if you want a tuk-tuk driver. And this one driver was like, I'm going to take you to a shooting range in the middle of a third world country. So <laughs> I thought, yeah, this is a really good idea. And then I arrived and saw that it was $150 to shoot a rocket launcher. Fuck, yeah. <laughs> Please tell me you did it. Actually, my my other half talked me out of doing anything because the area in which it, it was was just so dodgy. It was like, you know, one of those blocks that you don't go in. So the, the kind of area where they would let you shoot a rocket launcher? <laughs> I mean, it's not going to be in a high-end neighborhood. No, I didn't know. Like, we just thought it was just going to be something, you know, totally cool because it was a top driver. Right next driver. to the amusement park. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, yeah, it was uh, it was quite... I've never shot a gun. I am actually quite interested in doing it just to try it. So let's start with an RPG. Yeah. That's I've like done that. Sk- that's like skipping right to DMT. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, there's this range in Vegas that I went to for Joey's bachelor party, my business partner at URM, uh, Joe Sturgis, and uh, 
they had a minigun at this place. <laughs> yeah. John, if you're not familiar with miniguns. I know what it is. Okay. So for people who aren't, they're, uh, they're the thing in the door of a helicopter. Watch Terminator 2. Watch the end yeah. of Terminator yes, 2. Yes, yes. Yeah. Terminator 2. Man, okay, so first thing, that thing emptied in like five seconds. <laughs> it was so powerful. Have you ever been in the presence of one? I have not. It changed the air pressure in the room. Oh, my it God. It was so, like in movies, it just looks awesome, or in a video game, or like in, term, in, in Predator, you know, where he's like mowing down the jungle, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> in real life, the amount, the immense power that thing yields is hard to fathom. And literally, you press the button, and it's just like, brr, done. Yeah, you can't even, like, there's no way to count individual rounds with it. It just sounds like a static noise, It's, it's yeah. and it's deafening. Yeah, the whole room feels it, too. It's crazy. That's so crazy, man. It sounds like the UK needs some freedom. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, John, uh, when when uh, the Rona goes away, I can definitely take you to a range if you want to. Um... Oh, I'd be down, yeah, definitely. Are you still based in sort of the East Coast area? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be East Coast. So anytime you come come to town and yeah, this this crazy pandemic is going on, I'll definitely I could definitely take you out. I'd be down just to well not take you out, but take you to take the range. range yeah, take I don't want to scare you with uh, my, my terminology there. You wouldn't want to do that at a range though, because everyone will see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like that's like the last place you want to misbehave is a, a yeah. Range. That's a bad bad idea. <laughs> I have seen like those one or two videos that. I'm sure maybe you've seen them. They're really terrible of like uh, someone trying something at a range. Oh, God. <laughs> they don't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's not the place you want to do a mass shooting. No. <laughs> no. No. But so, again, for people who aren't aware of this, at ranges, they take safety super seriously. And so every range has like range masters. And basically, it's like a guy that guards, maybe, it depends on how many lanes. But, like, the ones I've been to, it's usually one guy per two or three lanes. And they're watching everybody. And uh, they're armed. And uh, they're there. They're, I mean, they're not there to, like, make sure you don't shoot other people on purpose. They're there to make sure you don't blow your own foot off or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, dumb shit that people do with weapons it's a serious thing i don't know anyone who has them or whatever who treats them like toys or whatever but you do get a lot of people who go to ranges as a novelty uh who have never done it before who have never taken a safety class who will do stupid shit like wave it around point it at themselves like you know the kind of stuff that will get you or somebody else killed so, oh, wow, that's a pretty dog. That is a very pretty dog. It's a, it's a husky, isn't it? Uh, yeah, he's a mini husky. Hey, Tycho. Oh. Yeah, uh, Want to be on the show? Oh, that is the most adorable. Dude, thing. I didn't know that a mini husky is a real thing. Yeah, they're they're called um they're called Alaskan Klikai, but I just call him a mini husky because that's exactly what he looks like. Wow. Well, I I got distracted by your dog's beauty. That's oh, well, yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, he's the, he's the reason I get up in the morning. So literally, I get distracted. Uh, I get distracted by his beauty all the time too. He's a good. He's a really good. He's my best friend. Like we, he's we, got a little bit of a chihuahua face. Like it's like it's like a large chihuahua crushed with a husky. Yeah, he's like fifteen pounds, and yeah, he's he, he's he's just a small husky. It's a cool breed, dude. Can you email me a picture of him later? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like, because all I see is grainy, but that's a gorgeous animal I've never seen. I've never seen that before. 
<laughs> I'm a dog lover. Yeah, they're like kind of a new breed. They they started in the 70s out of like, a, I guess like there was a, a farm or something in, in Alaska and they had uh, sled dogs. And then they, they had small sleds too. So <laughs> <laughs> they for, for the mini sleds. One of the pack that they had, like a really small one was birthed. And um, like, I guess they had this, they had friends visiting and one of the friends was a dog breeder. And then I might be getting this all wrong. I only read the story maybe like once. But she's like, what's the deal with that dog? And they were like, oh, he can't pull a sled. You want him or she or whatever? And so they took this little mini husky and they started breeding, breeding them. And then uh, they were they made a made a breed out of them because the, the husky traits are dominant. Do they have any of the problems of small dogs, like breathing problems or any of that kind of shit? Not typically. Some dogs do that like reverse sneezing thing. He'll get into a fit of that every once in a while, but it's only when he gets really excited and he's kind of like hyperventilating. Um, but I don't know if that's like an innately mini husky problem. But other than that, they're like a very robust breed. They don't have any like genetic issues or like uh, any sort of like deficiencies through breeding. You know, I lived in an apartment, so I figured, yeah, this is like the perfect apartment dog for me. So it's a beautiful dog. I love dogs. I want one so badly, but I'm always at work. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's the hardest. See, so like when I got for just because of that reason, when I got my dog, my dog's name is Tycho. And when I got him, I had to talk to a couple of people first. I had to ask my uh, roommate slash landlord at the time. I'm like, hey, is it cool if I get a dog? And if I do, would you mind like, would you be OK, like taking him outside once in a while and stuff? like? I took him out to dinner. I made it like this, like very like, you know. This was like almost, almost like, like a date. proposal. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to, you know, I, I had to do the same thing for my mom because my mom is the one that watches them when I go on tour. So it wasn't just like up to me about like getting a dog. It was because like we're working all the time. So it's like hard to, uh, you can't get a dog if you're going on tour. So there had to be some other people involved with that decision. Yeah. You know, I got mine after my touring career had ended, but my travel career never really stopped. I got a German Shepherd, which is a working dog. Yeah. And uh, she required, well, she's older now, so she doesn't require the same amount of work. But she required, you know, like moving five miles a day, intense amount of activity. And uh, what I would do is, well, I got her trained because I believe that if you're going to get a dog like that, you need to get them trained because they could kill somebody. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they literally could kill somebody because even if they uh, don't have a, a malicious bone in their body like some dogs do, like they could mistakenly uh, think that somebody's a threat to you. Um, and then they will fucking mangle the shit out of them. So uh, I got her trained and then anytime I would go out of town, I would just give her to the trainer. And so he'd have the dog for like four days, five days. And so every time I came back, the dog, it was like basically refilling the good behavior, uh, tank. Yeah. And, uh, I get this perfect dog back every time. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it worked great. Yeah. Then when I moved back to Atlanta and I didn't have that trainer anymore, she started staying with my mom when I went out of town 
and then it was like the good behavior tank got depleted every time. So every <laughs> That's single exactly time, what happens to my yeah, dog. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like, every single time like, I pick her up, it'd be like, "What the fuck happened?" Yeah, I'm like, yeah, you know, he starts. He he never begs for food, my dog. But after a Until tour, there's that. like there's a week or two where I'm just like, "Oh, you've been hanging out with my mom." That's I know why you're doing this, because he's just like I have like one of those like glass kitchen tables. So he'll walk underneath it and just stare at me from like <laughs> directly underneath the table. And I'm like, dude, where did you learn this behavior? But it's you oh, know, it's the worst, it, isn't it? When they do that, it's it's moms spoiling their grandkids. It's the same. That's uh, actually yeah, same that's thing. like exactly what it is, mm-hmm. because I've given mine zero human food and trained her not to beg. But mama untrained her <laughs> basically <laughs> perfect segue because you said you guys work all the time and i already knew that we know that you guys have one of the most amazing work ethics out of anybody in the game how's it been for you work-wise to stay home not be able to do the physical part of it i mean i know that you guys are the types of people who always and i say you guys because you know like we said i've had I've talked to everybody in your band multiple times except for your singer. But like, so I know, I know how you guys operate, but since this is our first time talking, um, I'm just curious work-wise how it's been from your perspective. It's been kind of like the same in some ways and kind of, and then after a while I'm like, wow, like I really need to start creating more things to do. So when I'd get home from a tour, I'd kind of just go into this like super isolationist phase where I'd just like, you know, get into a good video game or book or TV series or something like that. And I just like kind of, you know, grind away a couple of weeks, just chilling, decompressing. But after a while of this, uh, this whole pandemic thing, I'm just like, man, like I need more stuff to do. So I've had to kind of curate the rest of my year to like have things to do like I started working on a new like solo album but as far as like the band goes everything on my end has stayed almost the same besides the you know the rehearsals and touring so um, we do this amazing thing and I I highly recommend anybody who is like you know trying to organize better is to have like a weekly band call and we have a weekly band call with our manager and we kind of, you know, he's the MC. So he kind of just goes down his list of topics and, you know, we got periphery and we got three dot and we got merch and we got, now we have like a uh, bottom ramen, which is our, our little t-shirt project that we're doing. And it's just kind of like, it, it gives us a chance to stay connected on a consistent basis and to kind of make sure that everybody's on the same page. So, you know, some weeks don't go by and be like, and people, and some people who haven't spoken to others, cause we got all, we all, we're all best friends, but we all got our own things going on. So we don't talk that much outside of the, outside of these band meetings, especially like business stuff. So this is a way for us to like really stay organized and run the business and you don't really have to go anywhere for that. You know, I, I usually just do it in my pajamas and, you know, I, I throw on my, my iPhone headset and I'm usually, you know, just sitting there kind of like working on the business with the guys. And, and that's really like the bulk of like the, the band work. So besides doing all that stuff, which is, uh, it's organized by us, but also organized by our management. 
I've really had to like kind of like come up with other things to do. So like I've been um, I've been writing stuff for a new periphery album. Uh, I've been working on a solo album and I've like been trying to rebuild my studio and and kind of enter my phase of like, all right, dude, like you've kind of been slacking long enough time to, you know, time to join your peers and and get some and upgrade your equipment and get better lighting and make sure that you have uh, the stuff you're put you're outputting is staying competitive. So I've been kind of working on that um, over the past few months and uh, it's been going well. But yeah, really, the thing that's really just that, that's gone to a halt is uh, is the touring. So on my end, not much has changed. And I've had to like make changes in order to like not go crazy and feel like I'm just like sitting on my butt all day. Do you consider yourself more of a musician or entrepreneur like say Misha and Matt do you consider like if you were to like describe yourself because I I feel like in some ways they're almost I know they love music but it's almost like they seem more passionate about being entrepreneurs and the music is just like a vehicle for that whereas I think from talking to Mark he's a musician first because I mean Periphery is a super entrepreneurial band so I feel like you can't not think that way to a degree and be involved in that project but like if there's a spectrum you know between pure artist musician all the way to entrepreneur where do you where do you see yourself i'd say like me and mark are probably more similar in that sense i you know this is the weirdest thing about like being a musician a professional musician is that like i you guys, you guys know what imposter syndrome is. Have you Fuck heard? That? Yeah, you know, dude. It's not just musicians, though. Um, now that I've been in the business world for as long as I have, and I've met a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs outside of music, and uh, I think anyone who does well, who's not a psychopath, experiences it. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like. I'm like, some days, maybe when I've smoked weed, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't confirm nor deny I do that. I'll be sitting there and I'll be like, I'm a musician for a living and I don't know what I'm doing. And then I just like sit there with that thought and it's kind of like, oh my God, like, what do I do? I don't know what I'm doing. You know, and the thing is, is like, I'm able, I'm able to kind of compartmentalize these like anxieties and when I go into the studio with the guys, I'm more focused on just like making jokes and having fun with them. And then the music comes out naturally. And I don't think about the fact that I don't really actually know what I'm doing. I just like sit there and, and play around enough and try to emulate, like the guys in my band are my heroes. Like I try to, you know, I try to emulate their behavior musically as best that I can while infusing my, my own take on stuff. So I think with that desire and like that amount of drive to do that, I'm able to kind of hang with these guys. So even though like I am a musician by trade, I always kind of feel like, man, like I still don't know what I'm doing. Like if like somebody was like, all right, here's, here's $500, write a song for me. I, I'd be like, I can't keep your money. Like I wouldn't be able to do it like under that kind of pressure. You know what I mean? Which is where, you know, if you, talk to anybody else who is actually a musician, they could be like, yeah, no problem. I can do that. So, so I have that kind of like going on in my head, but then I do, I do kind of dabble in the whole like entrepreneurial thing. Like I'm working on something with, um, GGD. I can't say what it is cause I don't know if they want me to, but you know, that's kind of like when I realized that I could 
do something like this, I was like, oh, okay, so this this maybe is like how I get my my feet wet with this kind of stuff, kind of branching out. And then like the other things that I have going on are like I designed a signature series with Ibanez and I have a I have a, I have a couple of new guitars coming out. This is kind of like the standard like, you know, musician stuff. When, you know, your band gets to a certain level, you can talk to companies about making products that bear your name. And that's kind of like the as far as I've really ever gotten with doing stuff as a supplemental side. Do you think it's all about just finding a sort of niche as well or how do you pronounce it? Niche. <laughs> niche, yeah. Yeah, niche. Yeah. It's yeah, niche. I, it is niche, isn't it? Yeah. You got it, you got it right. You know what I'm saying when I say that though? It's like, you know, I think that to a degree, every musician has to have a slight entrepreneurial side to them. Cause otherwise you wouldn't want to, you know, tour in a band and try and make it. Do you know what I mean? You have to know what you're selling, you know? And, and I, I always feel like a little weird saying that, like, we sell music and we sell this or we sell that. Because it's just like, that's not why I got into it. I got into it because I really love doing it. But then I, at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, this is all a business. And you have to know what your, you have to know who your customers are. You have to know what they like. And you have to play to that at least a little bit. And, um, you know, cause it, yeah, it can be about the music. And I definitely used to be like one of those dudes. It's like, it's about the music, man. It's not about like <laughs> making money in the business and all that. It's like, no, like if you want to do this for a long time, then it's gotta be a business or at least some of it does. So at least as far as I go, I kind of figured out my thing. I personally, I am not a hundred percent into the whole, like, you know, constantly advertising and stuff like that. I actually like look at my Instagram and I'd be like, wow, there's a lot of advertisements up here. Let me post a picture of like my dog or some stuff that I'm working on just to <laughs> kind of like change it up. But I only do that so it doesn't look like, you know, this thing is just this constant stream of like buy my shit. And I think that's kind of like that part of my personality where it's just like, well, you know, it'd be disingenuous if I like tried to force myself to be an entrepreneur entrepreneur type guy because I just don't have that knack, you know, like I have it a little bit and I'll let that come out a little bit. And, you know, I'm perfectly happy just being like that. You know, I'm not I don't have like the any sort of like desire to kind of like change where I'm at in life yet. And I'm you know perfectly happy doing what I'm doing. I think that's great. I think yeah. uh, the reason I was asking is because I got the impression that wherever you saw yourself on that spectrum, you were cool with it. Well, the reason I'm saying this because I've heard a lot of people listen to some of these episodes and feel like because, you know, like we'll talk to Matt and talk about ice baths and like all kinds of crazy shit because he, he and I both do like extreme fitness stuff to get. And so we talk about it a lot. So we'll talk about that for like two hours and then I'll get like a bunch of messages where people will feel like shit that they don't do that. And it's like, you shouldn't feel like shit. Like self-awareness is the most important thing. Uh, you're either, you're wired the way you're wired. And as long as you're going the way that you are wired and you make the most of that, you're going to be fine. In my opinion. Yeah. So yeah. It's got to be some, trying, Yeah. Trying to be something you're not doesn't ever lead to good things. The, this world needs all types of people. Yeah. And, and also there's also like a, um, kind of like a space, like this invisible space that we all respect, you know, like I'm not going to go out and start a competing pedal company, you know, cause then, you know, that's going to step on the toes of somebody I care about very much, 
you know, and like, I'm sure he'd be a hundred, like I'm, I'm speaking about Misha and Horizon devices and stuff like that. Not that I have any sort of like inclination to do that. It's just that it's just not something that I really think about. It's cause like Misha already did that. Like, I don't need to do that too, you know? So like, eventually I feel like I'll stumble upon like the new thing that I want to work on, but it, it never, it never is in the pursuit of like, I need more money or I want to be more successful or I want to, you know, push myself harder. And, you know, it's, it's funny that we're talking about this because like, I kind of get shit from people about it. Like people in my life, they're like, you need to push yourself. Like, you know, Mark or Misha does, I don't see you posting stuff. And I'm just like, cause I don't want to, like, it's just not me, you know? And, and I feel like they're like, they want me to be more successful. And it's like, well, I don't want to be more successful. I'm perfectly happy. Like being, where I'm at, you know, it's like, and it's all about being happy. I think you're doing just fine, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yeah. So I think that, uh, it's really weird, man, what other people expect out of us. I really feel like when people say that they're telling you that they wish that they did something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or they had, if they had the, um, if they were sitting, where I'm sitting or in my shoes, that they would use that opportunity to do more with it. And it's just like, what if you're already doing what you want with it? Exactly. It's like, well, I'm already there, you know, and it's just like, you have to be okay with that because it's not really your decision to, or, you know, speaking hypothetically, their, their decision to make. So I think it's a lot of people just don't know what they want as an end goal. I think that's all, it also spans from that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and they, and I think like, there's kind of like this illusion of success that kind of hovers over band guys. And yeah. like, you know, because they'll, they'll see like, oh, well, you have a lot of followers and, and your YouTube videos have lots of plays. So you must be super successful. And then on the side, you know, like like people that that are in my life, they're kind of like, well, you know, you could be more successful. It's like, well, I don't want to be. <laughs> I'm, I'm perfectly happy here. Leave me alone. <laughs> you know, so it's like. Uh, exactly. If you, if you if you enjoy your day to day, like what you're doing every single day, obviously this time with the pandemic, it's a little bit different. But if you're happy day to day with what you're doing, then trying to, I think that's also a problem with everyone. They always want more. Yeah. Or they think they want more. Or they or they think that it will make them happier when in actuality, it's just about the self-awareness of understanding where you want to be. Yeah. And it's also about like making, like, I think I, I've never had an actual diagnosis, but I think like I'm super ADD or at least I used to be like way worse. And I have to make things in my life kind of digestible. Otherwise, I won't be able to to do I won't be able to keep up, you know. So if yeah. I if I as long as I kind of like meter my life and 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 keep it like pace to where I can digest it and do anything that I actually set out to do, I do it to the best of my ability. And like I I try my best and I don't feel like it's killing me, then I feel like I'm doing the right thing for myself because like I don't like living on adrenaline. Like I don't, I don't, it, it makes me really, really uncomfortable and it adds to my anxiety. And I also have like really shallow breathing and I always have to like remind myself to, to even breathe because I'm just like, there are certain moments where I'm just like, all right, I'm starting to feel like that anxiety and it's coming back and you can, you can have health problems because of that. And I, and, and I've suffered things cause I just don't, I'm too high strung. So learning how to pace myself is also important. Anxiety. That's one thing that I feel a lot of us musicians have to deal with. Do you reckon it spans from touring and being in all these places that we don't know what's going to happen, almost like the unknown? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a component to it. I think for me, 
and we could get like real psychological for a second, <laughs> but um, I think for me, it's kind of like I'm I, I'm I tend to be a people pleaser. I want people to take my contributions as like I did a good job, and and I did a good job not because you know I wanted the recognition from it, but because it will help whatever I'm contributing to, and that's kind of like where my head is at with that whole thing. So just explain that a little bit further with what you mean, just because I'm trying to understand. I try to make sure that like in order to keep my anxiety down, I I want to make sure that like anything that I'm contributing, it's just it's making the group happy or it's it's making yeah. them because if I if they're not if I feel like they're not or if I feel like I'm not doing my best, then my anxiety level raises and I'm I you know, I, I can't, re- that's really what makes my life worse. So it's almost like you have this standard for what your contribution should be in the world. And as long as you're meeting whatever that standard is that you set for yourself, you're good. And if you don't, then you start going to war with yourself. Precisely. Yeah. That's, that's exactly, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think that's like, kind of like, that's the thing that I've been fighting against for, for a really long time. And is that a bad thing though? To have high standards and then try to meet them? Yes. Yeah, because you're constantly chasing something that may not exist or you may not be capable of or... What's the alternative? Yeah, I think the, I think the trade-off is that it's like, at least I know I tried. I always like, I'm always asking my, myself this question, like, did I try hard enough? Is the stuff that I'm contributing, is it like, is it of the quality that I think it is? Or am I like convincing myself that it is just because I think I tried hard. So it's just this constant like ebb and flow of like, or this internal dialogue, I should say, of like, you know, trying trying to do this the or keep my frame of mind in this area and making sure that I'm managing my anxiety. So. So are there ever times where you can check off the boxes and be like, yes, the, what I just did fits the criteria. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. And when it happens, it's hugely rewarding. How do you know? How do you know when it happens? Well, I'd say if if we're going to get into specifics with that, like definitely like when it comes to recording or writing and recording periphery stuff with the guys, because I'd say that I probably write the most, but the, but most of my output doesn't get used because it's just like, I'm not, like I said, I don't fancy myself a musician. So I have to, I feel like I have to push myself a little bit harder to kind of write stuff at the quality that the other guys kind of do more innately. And then when I do, when I succeed, I know it. Like you can, I just, there, there's kind of, there's kind of like a, a sense that you can just, okay, yeah, this fits, this fits in this song. This like, I'm understanding what this song is about. I'm understanding what the other guys are kind of, kind of going for. Cause like trying to interpret that because we're all producers in our own right. We all have our own like separate vision and trying to get like unified with that is, is challenging. I think it's challenging for, for everyone. But for me, I feel like it's, it's a bit harder. And, uh, when I figure that out, when I, or when I succeed at that, it's, it's, it's enormously rewarding. And I think that's kind of, that's the thing I focus on the most. Have you ever considered the fact that you're just about every musician that's done well feels like they don't know what they're doing? Not that it changes anything for the way your head works, but are you aware of that? I can relate to that because I hear that often. And it's it's nice to know that, at least in our scene, that that seems to be kind of a common thread. And it's kind of what I love about this scene and, and, and kind of 
what I love about metal is that, you know, I guess the self-deprecation gets a little old. I mean, I do it all the time and people are probably sick of it right by now, but um, <laughs> at least there's kind of that sense of like, yeah, it's, 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 it's good. And, and, you know, but I can do better. And yeah. I like that because it's constantly pushing all of us forward. And, and a lot of people don't have big heads because, they they know that because you know metal even though metal is getting bigger it is it is still like the underdog and if we're gonna like look at all the genres of music and I think that a lot of people at least that I know have a reasonable heads on their shoulder and they keep their expectations where they should be and um and you know while I I'd say that it's kind of like a I don't know the right word for it. It's not a psychosis, but I guess it's an anxiety of like that, that imposter syndrome that we're talking about. I'm, cl- I'm, I'm sort of happy that like I'll, other people experience that too. So I don't feel so alone about it. Uh, like I said, I don't think that anybody except for the psychopaths don't experience that <laughs> because I mean, we all know the psychopaths and sociopaths in the scene, but there's not that many of them, uh, but they stand out. We've all come across them. Do you think that maybe it's an act by them as well, to a degree, a front? It's not an act. They're wired that way. But it's it's rare, though. It's rare. It's not very common. It's rare. And then um, you guys probably know about this uh, this cognitive bias uh, called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. I feel like that has kind of been the the overarching theme of the past couple of years just with everything like media and politics and and music and stuff and you can kind of see it when you see these like legendary musicians on youtube and they're just blowing it like totally just like yeah they probably shouldn't be playing this because they sound terrible but like i wonder how much of that is like dunning kruger effect where they're constantly being told that they're great by the people that are around them and they just they get massaged into that way of thinking and then there's really no going back. Like they just like, well, this entire time, everyone, everyone's been telling me that I've been doing great. I think it's partially that, but then I also think, and I'm not going to, I can't name names here, <laughs> but there's a, there's a famous guitar series on YouTube that had been around for a long time, run by some uh, big guitar uh, publication where guitar players would play something super impressive. And uh, so many people that we know who are amazing would have clips of themselves playing stuff that sounded like complete and utter dog shit. (laughs) And since I know these people, and I know you know them too, and we've sat in backstage rooms with them and we know just how good they are, something didn't make sense about these videos coming out versus what I know about these players. Like, And then I got involved in one of those and we did like five takes told them exactly which ones not to use and guess which ones they used (laughs) and so um i got the impression that they were doing that shit on purpose Mm. they were doing that shit on purpose and it could be number one because the person behind it was pissed he's an older dude who was never in a big band who knows a ton about guitar and uh, like when I was there, I could feel his anger and his spite, <laughs> his spite towards rock stars. Not that we were rock stars, but like a lot of rock stars did come through there. You could feel his spite towards well-known musicians. So I think that it's partially that 
and then also partially it will be more viral if uh if it's shit if this dude that is so fucking respected gets shown fucking up because dude there's no way there's so many great you probably know exactly what i'm talking about there's and if you don't i'll tell you afterwards but uh <laughs> I think I have an idea. Yeah, I'm sure you know. There's so many great players on there who are just eating shit that uh, <laughs> after experiencing it, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but uh, I came to the conclusion that it was intentional. Could be. I mean, it's like, I feel like I feel like live music is one of those things that's really hard to get right, especially in the metal world, because we're so conditioned to hear like this pristine production and like everything is like just quantized and right where it should be and there's this kind of expectation that we're supposed to be able to replicate that live i'm not denying that that it should be that way you know i tr i try my hardest to to play like the recording but it will never be like that at least for me i know i know maybe like you know a handful of dudes that can do it like you know and you guys are are i put in that list you guys kill it um both you both you two do you know why it's because <laughs> it's because i didn't uh for the first two albums i i had this mindset with it not editing the guitars so it gave me a little bit of leeway when it came <laughs> to playing it live <laughs> it's at least like i performed one whole riff in that sort of way so it's like all right i can play it like that but that is kind of a product of everything being almost completely edited to the grit it yeah. comes with its drawbacks in that situation. You know what I mean? Not to say that bands aren't tight live. There's a difference between being tight and then being a machine, I think. Yeah, yeah. Not that it's bad. You know, it's not, neither way is wrong. I think that's like, I think that's almost, yeah, the, the problem with the crowd expecting that as well and not fully understanding. And I think that also goes back to Al's point as well, that it might not have necessarily been malicious, albeit the way that he said it, it probably was, but it might have also been just from a lack of understanding on what was wanted. True. If it is a conspiracy, <laughs> maybe maybe it'll work. Maybe we'll all start practicing more and <laughs> become better guitar players because this guy got pissed off that like we're not but the thing is, is like, I, I know a lot of people in these videos and I know they're, they're sick and they're fine. And like, you know, just because you came in and you plugged into like, you know, the worst amp you've ever played. Yeah, they got like That's a, the other thing though. They have the worst amps you've ever played in your entire fucking life. There's no way you'll sound good on those. Yeah. Here's like, here's like a one by 12, like now sound good. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. At, I know exactly eight, what you're talking eight, about now. At 8.30 in the morning yeah. with like, it's in the most uncomfortable situation you can ever imagine. With <laughs> And like, I'm a, I'm definitely a hands over gear person, but there's some gear that you will never sound good through. Yeah, that's true. And I, I, I'm, I'm a hands over gear person as well, but not me as a player. I acknowledge that as a thing because of guys like Wes Houck. Oh, Wes, fucking hell, he's so good. It's disgusting. That guy's insane. That guy can take my shittiest guitar, and he has. Like, I've, like, you know, he'll come to a show or something like that, and I'll, he'll play one of my guitars, and he'll make it sound so good. Yeah. And and we'll, he'll be plugged into, like, a microcube, and it'll yeah. sound so damn good. It's really, really frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me want that so bad. It's funny, like, when I filled in for you on guitar, it's the first time I met Wes when he was living on the West Coast. 
And I remember just hearing him play without it plugged in and I already knew how sick he was. Yeah, yeah. He's got that finger tone and just like the super even left and right hands and it just it's just, uh, man, that's the first person I think of when I think of like hands over gear. Yeah. But yeah, even, 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 even so though, it's just like if you're going and doing a video, you know, you need to have your stuff because you know how it reacts to your playing. Yeah. And if you're like playing through some super squishy thing that has like not enough gain or too much gain and not the effects that you use, then, you know, you're kind of fighting an uphill battle if you're not prepared for it. Yeah, definitely. Have you ever had to like go on stage and play through gear that you've had no idea, like something's broken or you've just had to deal with it? Hmm. Yes, actually. So we did this, um, this festival in Chicago in 2017 and, um, we were uh, we were using one of those uh, Behringer X32 monitor racks. Yep. And the thing just wouldn't power on, so um, we had no we had no in ear monitors, and we hadn't played through wedges in probably like six years at that by that point, maybe longer. So we had no idea what that would feel like or what that was like. And I think we didn't have um, patch changes to something else when when. Because like normally we have our computer switch the the sounds on our axe effects, and I think that was gone too. I can't remember exactly. So we had all of all of the stuff coming through the floor wedges with none of our sounds, and we kind of just had to go up there and just raw dog it. And uh, it was kind of fun. We all just like shot whiskey and um, went. We played in pouring rain too, so it was just like a whole day of just like shit going wrong. So I think that was the closest that we've been, luckily, to having to play through like something that we don't recognize. But we've never had to like go and like play like through gear that's just not ours. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I I think that I rely so heavily on the stuff that we use. And our system is so specific that if we were without it, we'd sound worse than we already do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I've had to because obviously I'm still an amp guy kind of through and through um i like play i like to have even though we're on in-ears now i like to get blasted by that air from the cabs yeah i get that yeah but before that like for example the first time we played in india i had to play through a 5150 and quite a lot of people know where i stand with that amp (laughs) in the i think it sounds great when other people play through it but for me it feels all wrong for what I want to do. It doesn't quite react. I recorded you through one and it sounded great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, tonally, as I said, it sounds great, but everything about it feels wrong to me. I don't know why. It's one of those things. It doesn't feel comfortable to play for me. And I remember playing in India through one and it was just the worst possible time were you getting in your own head about it too? Like you, were, yeah. like you weren't thinking about, you weren't like getting into the the songs. You were kind of being like, this is all wrong. Was that happening to you? Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you palm mute on certain amps and you can sort of connect with it, you, uh, you know, you know, because you played Mesa for ages, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know those. I know the rectifiers. Exactly. Like when you palm mute on that, when it's got a boost in front of it, it has this vibe to it that's just super sick, it's super tight. And the 5150 doesn't really have that. It's more squishy and kind of all over the place. Brown, that's so interesting you say that because remember when we shot that boot camp, yeah. the recto was what drove you nuts and you yeah. could play through it. And then the 5150 saved the day. 
There's a difference between how it sounds in the room and how it sounds through a mic as well. That's the old fair order. enough. Fair enough. And yeah. I gotta I gotta say one thing. Like I, I don't want to disparage Mesa at all because they they've been like my go to amp company since like I started playing guitar. But I don't know if they're still like this because I haven't played a Mesa in, in quite a long time. But the rectifiers are like depending on what era you get, um, and even like within the same era, like the amps could be so different from yeah. one to another. And then the EQs don't really EQ what they say they do. And so you have to fight against that too. And and I, I'd say like as a fellow amp guy, I'm not as into him as you are just because I I I'm not I'm not that smart, but um <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like it's part of the instrumentation, knowing how to use that amp with yeah. your playing style, with the style of music. It's it's just as important to the music as the guitar and the guitar parts because you yep. you're there. It's this interplay, so that's why it's so important. And so, if you were in that situation, like you say in India, like I can't imagine enjoying that show at all, just because it's just like <laughs> you know, your your part of your instrument isn't working. Exactly. Yeah, I think also it's. You know, you can have the same amp, as you said, with a dual rec. Like every single one of them is ever so slightly different. And it just changes everything. So I guess, you know, having an Axe FX or a Kemper or a Helix does take that out of the equation and make sure that you don't get anything different. But at the same time, I want to feel like I'm being hugged from behind by a big, grizzly, <laughs> angry-sounding, distorted bear. Well, you know... <laughs> I, I like the way you put that because that's exactly how I feel. I just never been able to put it into words before. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in that sense, we um, Misha has been kind enough to uh, uh, get stage right a couple of the Invective 120s. And so on my Axe Effects, I have my normal rhythm patch that's for that's with the 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 cab sim and it goes directly into my in-ear mix but i also have an effects loop split off before the cab sim that goes to the effects loop return on the invective 120 and then i get to have that i skip the the invectives preamp goes directly into the power amp and i get to have that power amp and the four by twelves underneath it the, the the matching four by twelves which I think have a V30 and a creamback combo in there which I think is just a really really fun combination and it gives you that you know I I, I don't like when we're just doing direct like I want I want to have that 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 amp feel because it's just it's it's satisfying it's really yeah. satisfying and um, I've also found that you know with the smaller gigs just having the cab just helps with the front row. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, Experience. there, there, there are bands that go direct and you know, you, you totally, and you stand side stage and you, you know, they're killing it, but you can't hear anything because there's just nothing on stage. Just drums. Um, yeah. It's just drums. <laughs> and it's just like, well, the crowd's enjoying it, but I'm not. <laughs> God, I remember the first time that, uh, I used an Axe effects on stage with in-ears. Nobody else in the band did, but I felt like I had to uh, be the tip of the spear. and But also it happened to be the final tour, so I guess the tip of the spear for nothing. But uh, anyways, <laughs> like did an entire tour where I was the only dude with that setup, and it was so fucking weird <laughs> because you'd walk over to my sta- side of the stage and it'd be silent. And then walk over to the other side of the stage and it'd be like a fucking barrage. And... Uh, and it threw everybody off. It, it was just so weird. After getting used to having like 
two to four cabinets per person to suddenly having one side of the stage just be silent. It's kind of disconcerting. Yeah, and and when you're going when you're going direct like that, the the first time that I played direct, I'm like, I hate this. Like, I'm a terrible guitar player. I can hear everything, and I don't like it. I want to hear. I, I want to. You know, I want people to lie to me and kiss. I want to be enveloped <laughs> with this vibration. Yeah, like I, 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 you know, I couldn't handle the fact that, like, wow, this it sounds terrible. I need to practice. Um, but it made it forces you to get better, and you know because you're not you're getting an accurate or at least a yeah, more keeps accurate, you honest. Yeah, you're getting a more re- accurate representation of what you're you're outputting, and you're not getting because like when you go to a venue, like every there's so many frequencies that are just shitting in your ears, and it's just like it's it's just like opening their butt and shitting <laughs> yeah, right in. Yeah, it's just it's <laughs> you know it's not a it's not always a pleasurable experience, but. You know, once you learn to dial in that direct sound, it does get better. You do you do get rid of a lot of that noise. And there's there's this kind of like there's this funny noise battle that happens at Soundcheck with between the three guitar players and uh, and our sound guy Alex and, and and our other sound guy Ronnie. It's just like there's a whole section of Soundcheck where we have to like adjust our cab levels because they keep telling us to turn down and we keep turning them back up. And it's just like, it's just, it's, it's the eternal conflict. So you've mentioned many times that you don't consider yourself a good musician, yet you're in a band that requires good musicianship and you play with really good musicians. So, uh, he's lying as well. So, well, I know, I, I know. I think, <laughs> cause I, think I had to play his fucking parts. I understand. Dude, I, I think it's like the musician version of body dysmorphia. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I yeah. have, I have an eating disorder, except I have a guitar disorder. Yeah, uh, unaware of your own level, uh, which I think is a kind of a good thing with musicians because it uh, that's one of the reasons that they keep on trying to get better is they don't think they're good enough. Obviously, if they thought they were good enough, they would stop trying to get better and then they would get worse because since it's a perishable skill, you have to keep trying to get there's no there's no maintaining. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. It's an endless journey. Like they'll never, you'll never reach your destination. You just have to enjoy the traveling. Yeah, exactly. But that said, what do you do to be able to keep up? Like what is a day in the life of Jake involved guitar wise, or at least maybe not every single day, but like overall, what are the kinds of things that you do to be able to keep up? Yeah, this is, this is like really important for me. And you know, just to preface this, like, I know that I'm a competent musician. I just don't like to say that I'm a good musician because if I was under pressure, I'd probably just blow it. But you're under pressure all the time. Yes and no. So what I do to like get ready for like a a tour or some sort of performance or or whatever is, and and this might drive the guys nuts. I'm not sure they haven't said anything. (laughs) I'll ask two months before we start the tour, like, okay, what do we plan? What do, what do you guys want to play? And they're like, it's two months from now. Can we talk about this later? And I'm like, nah, I kind of want to know now. <laughs> and the reason is, is because I have this dry erase board in my kitchen and I'll write down two songs on every day of the week up until that tour. And those are the two songs that I just play over and over again all day. And I do these little like 20, 25 minute sessions of playing, you know, throughout the day every hour, just like, and, and I, I obsessively practice and it kind of gets me to a point where it's all muscle memory and I'm not thinking about it anymore, but it takes so much preparation to get there that that's really, 
the only way for me to kind of like hang with these guys. Cause like, you know, if you're ever around Mark or Misha and they're like, oh yeah, what's that riff from that song? They'll just be able to play it. Like, and it could be like 11 years old and they'll be able to figure it out. And I'm not like that. Like once it's gone, it's gone. Like I have to relearn it. I have this whole uh, directory on my computer that has videos for every riff and every song. So when we're playing stuff or when we're divvying up parts for, for tours, I'll be like, Oh, can you play that again? I'm going to film you playing that. So I have videos of everything so I can reference those when it comes time to, to playing the stuff live. So that way I'm not like playing my interpretation of it. Cause my ear is not that great. Um, and I can see exactly what they're doing and making sure that the fingering is correct and that the right hand rhythm is, is correct. And the palm, just everything. Like I, I just obsess over it. And I think that's really the main reason why I've been able to like hang with these guys. Cause they are all phenomenal musicians. And, um, you know, it's kind of, it's the thing that's, that's driven me. And that's like, kind of like made me want to be in this band is like, if I keep hanging around these guys and like emulating what the, what they're doing, I'll do just fine. <laughs> so. Hard, hard work. And I don't mean to say that you've got no talent or anything like that, but this is like prime example, of hard work over talent. Like, obviously you've got talent, but like you realize what your shortcomings are and you figured out how to, how to overcome them with the right kind of hard work. Yeah. It's time put into it. You know, that's how I operate. And I've noticed that things have gotten easier to learn and easier to conceptualize because I've spent so much time obsessing over it. And it's a healthy obsession. It's not like I'm sitting there freaking out. I have it in my head that I'm like, all right, well, you know, I have two months. If I can't get this in two months, I have no business doing this for a living. So that's kind of my attitude about it. Eventually tour rolls are long and I'm, I'm feeling real good about it. And yeah, so that's how I do it. <laughs> do you know what's funny about this? You only gave me three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're an interdimensional freak, and I am. No. Uh, I'm just some some guitar player. I, you, Brown, you are an interdimensional. No, 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 freak. no, 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 no. There, there is, you know, there's a limit. It's periphery. The songs are difficult. I was pretty stressed out on those three days. Probably didn't show it with you, but... Killed um, it, man. So you feel like you needed four days? I think actually what it was... Or three and was, a half? No, no, no. <laughs> what it was was um, we got to play through the set once. <laughs> Is, isn't that enough <laughs> Sorry, for you? funny. <laughs> Before we got in the van and drove to Houston. And I think the, that's when, I, when it kicked in. It's like, fuck, I forgot like 10 of the riffs during that. And then for that 24 hours trying to remember those three days... <laughs> you know what's funny though? This is it gets even funnier. And this is this is a testament to to John's ability as a player and to his his ability to retain the stuff is that like that was back when we were playing a lot of the periphery one stuff. And that was all of my riffs it, that I played live were like the weird stuff in the songs. They weren't like the main riff. There wasn't there wasn't like something that you could necessarily reference and discern from the recording because I was playing like either like layers or certain counterpoints that was following the bass line that that was different than the main rhythm line. So you were able to retain like all like the weird things that people don't necessarily hear on the forefront of the mix, but if you were to take it away, the song as a whole would suffer. So you were able to retain like that, that stuff. And I, you know, I got to say, man, like I commend you for, I still think about it to this day that you were able to do it. Like, cause like, you know, it's just, it's, 
not easy music by any stretch. And, and you, uh, you rose to the occasion and you, you, you know, in, in Europe, you did double duty, right? Only for a few shows. Cause uh, obviously Nolly did the UK. If anyone's not familiar, Jake fell off a monitor <laughs> while he was hanging the backdrop in Manchester and his finger was in a different postcode. Depends on oh who you ask. Oh my God, that hurt. That kind of like made me shudder. It like made my asshole clench a little. <laughs> like you, you, know that, you know that feeling when you hear of somebody uh, injuring themselves and you just get this tingle? Oh, uh, dude. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I have a that. picture of me holding Ugh. my finger up, and it's like over here. Oh my oh, god! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible. I remember it well. But it, you know, if you, it depends on who you ask about what happened that day. Because like, if you go online, there's like a bunch of comments that like said I broke it off in a dude's butt or something like that. And, <laughs> and that, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Just just to okay. clear the air. <laughs> Thank you, because it's been a long running debate. Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> I'm glad we're all on the same page. <laughs> This podcast was important. <laughs> but yeah, like it's the most uncool way to like break your finger and I managed to do it. I will say though, like because that that happened, I kind of something there was like a fire inside of me at that point because yeah. I wanted to get be able to play again so badly that I just I practiced even even when the band was out with you John, I was at home just practicing with no finger. Like I was just using like, uh, the two end ones, wasn't it? Yeah. It was like, cause these were tied together. So I had, I had my, my index finger and my pinky and, um, it's like sort of like Django. He didn't, he, wasn't he missing a finger? (laughs) Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of like that sort of thing. And, and the only reason I did that was because the doctor was like, if you want to use your finger again, you just got to start using it. He's like, don't, don't, it, it's not going to get like any worse from using it. Like, just don't, don't play until it hurts, but, but go and play. And so I'm like, all right. So I followed that advice for a couple of months. And then, uh, you know, I wrote a bunch of stuff for Periphery 2 because of that. Um, I became, I started writing solos because like, I was like, well, you know, I might as well teach myself how to play solos. And then, you know, I became a lead player from that. So that experience like kind of transformed me. It was kind of that thing. It was like, all right, man, well, you may lose this forever, so you might as well try. And uh, so even though that happened and it sucked, I have a lot to thank for that, that experience. And I have a lot to thank for um, socialized healthcare because they fixed it in the, in uh, the Manchester hospital emergency room or something like that. And I didn't have to pay a dime. If that happened in, uh, in America, I would have been in debt. So, so many things lined up for me when that happened, even though it was a really shitty event, you know, we got, you, you stepped up to, to, to help us and you helped us immensely. My finger wasn't, was, was helped by, you know, a good medical system. And I, uh, I became a better guitar player because I wanted to get, I wanted my finger to get better. So like, you know, I turned a really shitty situation into a good one because of all those things just lining up the way they did. It's always good to see positive in a negative situation, I think. Like, and it goes back to what we were talking about, like not reacting in the moment and just giving it time and to actually see the, like, there's no point in getting angry if there's no need to. And I think that that situation is actually a perfect example of that. Because obviously I remember how you were after that happened. You know, you got the flu in Europe as well. (laughs) And then obviously I was at your house learning these songs. I could see the sadness, um, you know, from it. But at the end of the day, when you came back, I actually remember 
how good you are as a guitar player. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, as well. I, you know, we couldn't have uh, we couldn't have done that without you helping. So it was, uh, you know, I really appreciate what you did for us there. All good. You know, I, I think most of these types of situations that we call bad are neither good nor bad. They're just situations. I mean, yeah. you know, obviously with the exception of uh, someone dying or something like that, which is kind of hard to spin as a positive, most of these situations are just things that happen. So how we decide to interpret them or react to them is what is what defines them as good or bad. And it's completely up to us. Not that breaking a bone ever feels pleasurable or anything, but the totality of the experience is defined by what you do in light of it. Yeah. And so it could be either a colossal clusterfuck or it could be something that uh that propels you to to do things that were far beyond what you were doing before that. In which case it's a good thing. Yeah, it's character defining. That could easily have it had it been a different set of circumstances. It could have even been me. Doesn't you know, I'm not special or anything. It's, uh, you know, if that happened to me at the wrong time or it happened to somebody else at the wrong time, that could have sent them into a depression. They could have made bad decisions out of that depression. Like, it's like, it's all very situational. And, you know, there's a lot of luck there. And I was uh, lucky enough to kind of take that situation and kind of shape it into something that was healthy and not, because like, you know, I have, I've battled depression, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm very prone to it. And um, it didn't get me there, and I'm very thankful for that. What do you do to battle it? I'm just wondering because so many people listening have dealt with it, including me and Brown. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know it's it's a very like consistent ailment amongst like people who are uh, creatives. You know, it's just it, it seems like we're very um, susceptible to it. That or anxiety or both. Yeah. I have two things that really, really help. I have a personal mantra where I'm like, you know, it's it doesn't really help in the, it just helps keep me focused. And really the personal mantra is like, it's, it's only time. It's only time and things will get better. I just keep saying that to myself over and over and over again. I try to, I, I, it's the optimist side of me coming out. And then the thing that actually like physically helps is, uh, just like doing every drug in the book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, going and hiking, being out in nature, getting lots of sun and, and getting that vitamin D cranking. Vitamin D and exercise, man, the best antidepressants. Yeah, staying enclosed in, in, the, in, in four walls, just it'll destroy me and it has. And I realized that, you know, I need to buy a pair of hiking boots and I need to get my ass up in the mountains and, and look at some trees and, um, you know, make some hiking friends. And, uh, you know, and, and I did that and I consistently do that still. And I find that I don't get as depressed anymore because I know that I have that to look forward to. I recently just did a, I completed a, a, a three week trip in which I, um, I road tripped with my girlfriend to Yellowstone and uh, the Grand Tetons. And we just hiked for three weeks. And, you know, we went, you know, we saw some of the craziest stuff. And I came back from that just feeling like a brand new person. And, you know, it, it also like kind of, even though like I knew it was going on and we had to deal with it some somewhat being out there, 
it kind of paused this pandemic for me because we were just out in the middle of nowhere and there were no other people around except when we were in like the more dense parts of these parks. But for most of our trip, there were no people. So I just felt like I was just kind of like in nature and none of this other crazy shit was going on. That might sound selfish, I, I but you know, I don't intend it to be. It's just... Dude, ev- everyone needs to do what they can do to uh, keep their wits and their sanity. Yeah. And it really helped. Like it just, you know... It, if you if if you haven't been out that way and you enjoy being outside, that's I think that's like a must. If you come to America ever, you got to see that because you you won't believe your eyes. It's some of the most beautiful scenery I've ever seen in my life, and that's really like that's really the key for me is just to stay outside and exercise, vitamin D, and yeah, that's that's the thing that helps the most. I think that the power of vitamin D is um, is not really appreciated by a lot of people, especially in England anyway, because, you know, we, we're quite a dark country when it comes to... Dude, it's... it's a pre- I will say, though, it's appreciated in the American uh, me- medical community and uh, people who deal with depression. Uh, it's like a... It's a very known thing that you should be taking 5,000 IU of it. If you suffer from depression, uh, that's just, like, common knowledge that you should be either taking it or getting outside for 30 minutes a day, at least. Like that's common, common knowledge. If they don't know that in England, they should. Well, we just don't have any sunlight. Yeah. 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 Get those course. vitamin, get those vitamin D capsules or drops or chewables and get those 5,000 IU. Yeah. Yeah. Highly recommend. Plus it protects from Corona. Does it? Yep. Do you take, do you take vitamin D? Fuck yeah. Why have you got a cold? <laughs> well, I don't want to say why I got a cold. But, uh, <laughs> you went exploring. It's personal, yeah. Exploring. That's a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not getting into that. But yeah, I've been taking vitamin D for mental reasons for like years now. And uh, I mean, you can you can confirm that uh, my depression has gotten way, way, way better. But it's not just vitamin D. It's vitamin D plus exercise plus sunlight plus improved diet, plus improved sleep, you know, and, plus and, weight loss. And, and, and improved social interactions too. I, I, we all, I think a lot of people have this tendency to kind of get withdrawn. And I do that naturally, even when I'm not depressed. I just like, yeah, I want to be alone. And uh, when, when I do get into a depression, I have to be, I have to force myself to be like, go, go see your friends, go take your mom out to dinner, like, you know, walk the dog at the dog park and go, you know, see the other people who walk their dogs, you know, like I I have to force myself to do that stuff. Otherwise I start to get like introverted and weird and stuff. I I talk to myself a lot. You tell yourself jokes. Yeah. All the time. (laughs) And then I'll tell myself a joke and then I'll like text it to my buddy. Elliot, because like uh, Elliot, yes, yeah, and Elliot's a real person. Elliot is a real person. All he's right. he's not the he's not the Elliot from Mr. Robot, who is a fake person. Okay, just make sure. Is it Mr. Coleman when you say Elliot? Yeah, Elliot Coleman. Elliot Coleman's my best friend, and uh, you know he he's a big reason why I don't fall into depression anymore too. Because like he's a very good influence on me, like with the whole like exercising and uh, kind of um, just eating healthier. Right now, um, we're doing a, uh, a sober year because our thing, because we live far from each other. He lives in Brooklyn and I live in upstate New York. And our thing has always been like... So no meth? <laughs> no meth. Yeah, no meth for a year. 
Good job. Just DMT and cocaine. No. Well, um, yeah, I mean, you know. I'm being sober here. <laughs> we'll get like a six pack or a bottle of wine each and we'll go on, you know, PlayStation and just like play UFC against each other for hours or just like I'll watch him stream like a game and we'll just drink and talk while one of us plays and stuff like that. And we would do that every night. And it got to the point where we're like, maybe we should take a break from this because like we're going to accidentally become alcoholics. And, you know, there probably was a time when I was actually by definition an alcoholic and didn't intend that was not my intention. I don't think people intend to become alcoholics, but like, I just wasn't really aware of it. You know, it was just kind of like this thing that we did. So now thanks to him, he's like, what if we take a year off from alcohol? Let's just try see if we can do it. And we've been doing it like since July. So it's been working and, you know, I really owe a lot to him putting me on the path of like healthier living. And, you know, we share our workout plans with each other. Yeah. It's just, it's just a really, it, our friendship is like, is based a lot around like this kind of mutual respect for each other. And like, I respect the way that like he's been able to kind of live his life in this like very structured routine that's healthy, but that's also fun. And, you know, it's just, it's just a good guy to have, have in my life. Cause you know, I, I, I would probably do more destructive things if I didn't have him as a friend. So <laughs> that reminded me of this band I shared a bus with once the singer was one of those intense alcoholic drug user types. Intense. And uh, he was telling me how this was a sober tour. And uh, so <laughs> no no drugs or alcohol allowed on the bus. It's like, fine. This guy's an elder statesman. We're going to respect it. They're the headliners. Fine. What that meant was that he would only drink a case of wine a day. <laughs> it's like, that, that's him not drinking is a case of wine a day. A fucking case. That's, uh, He's on six yeah. bottles. I yeah. commend I commend his self imposed limits, but I don't know if that's gonna. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean that's kind of the thing. It, it reminds me of that that uh, that gag from Half Baked, where like Snoop Dogg kind of like floats out of like the ether, and you know he like kind of like bums the smoke and he's like, it's too bad. I just quit yesterday. <laughs> it's like the same, same idea. It's exactly the same idea. So we've got a few questions from our listeners for you that I uh, figure we should ask you. So I will begin. This one's from Jordan Durant, which is, Hey Jake, hope you're doing well. I was wondering how different your process is when it comes to writing for your solo electronic project as opposed to writing for periphery. Like, do you use a different DAW? Do you still write riffs, et cetera? It's pretty different. I'd say the 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 most obvious different difference is I don't have the guys to kind of tell me if stuff sucks or not. So I have I'm like on my own to like and unless I send somebody an idea, but like I don't really do that anymore just because I'm not it takes me a long time to kind of compose a song from start to finish. And if I let anybody hear anything, it has to be in some sort of finished capacity. But um, I'll start out a lot of my ideas on the guitar first because I just understand note relationships on the neck of the guitar than I do on a piano roll. I do have um, several keyboards in my house and I can kind of like noodle my way around, but I can't come up with the same density of phrases that I would on a guitar. I can't like write the mo most complex stuff on the piano. So I always stick with the guitar first to kind of conceptualize. Then I'll record it. And then what I'll do is I'll start programming things over the guitar parts. 
and I'll I'll use different synths for that. And then what what ends up happening is that I'll have these like long phrases of synth lines that are mirroring the guitar parts. And then I'll chop up those waveforms and rearrange them and pan them and send them through different like EQs, um, you know, to, to kind of get a filtered effect. And um, I kind of piece together these pieces of synth and guitar parts. And then I'll, I'll put a rudimentary drum beat over underneath it to kind of give myself some framework to work within. And then I, I just piece together sections that are complementary to each other through trial and error. So it, if I knew what I was doing better, I, I'd probably, it would take me a lot less time to write a whole song, but that's generally my approach. I start with the guitar, then I overlay synths, then I chop and edit the synths to kind of create more interesting uh, varieties of sections or layers. And I, all while trying to stay within the framework of the, the drum beat that I made. And then at the very end, I start playing with different drum beats because, you know, I can change I can change the drum beats and the accents last. And sometimes that creates interesting results. So that's kind of been my method. That's the method I'm using right now to write my the album I'm writing right now. Awesome. Thanks for the question, Jordan. I have a question here from Greg How, uh, Greg How or Greg Who. It's not the Greg How though. Oh man, I got all excited for a second. I'm like, wow. Well, it's the Greg Howe, but a different yeah, Greg. A different Howe. Greg Howe, yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm interested in this question as well because this applies to me as well, and I'll explain why after. But um, growing up, how much influence did your uncle have on your playing? And the main reason why I'm finding it interesting because I actually picked up the guitar because of my uncle. So I want to see how this um, was for you as well. All right. So I'll just come right out of the gate and say, like, he's been a huge influence on me, like in more, more ways than, than just musically. And, um, I can get to that in a minute. Um, but the, the thing that kind of went, so I, I, I was, I grew up with him obviously. And so I was, I was a little kid and I didn't really understand that, like who he was or what his band was at the time. And this is probably when I first started becoming aware of this, this was probably when images and words had just come out. And um, I even had heard Pull Me Under on the radio, and I didn't know that it was my uncle's band. I, it was just that song that I knew the chorus to. And I used to go to summer camp in in New York, and um, there would be like, uh, like in the middle of the day, there'd be like pool time where all the campers would go to the pool at the camp and uh there was this like metalhead lifeguard and like he had like long hair and he just looked like a metal dude and I was just starting to get interested in the guitar at that point but not I wasn't playing it I was just like oh maybe I want to do that so I walked over to him and I'm like um I'm like hey cool you play the guitar you know I tried to strike up a conversation with, and I'm, I'm like I think I'm eight at this point I'm eight years old maybe a little older I'm not sure and we got into a conversation about it. And, you know, he's telling me that I was listening to metal. And I was like, oh, uh, my uncle's in a metal band. And um, he's like, oh, really? What's the band called? And I'm like, they're called Dream Theater. And like, he was just like, kind of like at a loss for words. And that was the moment that I was like, oh, okay. So like people like know about my uncle, like my uncle's band is like kind of like a thing. Like it's not just this like thing that he does and no one really knows or cares about it, but he's actually a known musician. And so I started paying attention at that point. And, um, I even like took lessons from him for a couple of weeks and, uh, it kind of like, I, so I got to watch the growth of him as a musician 
And it kind of took out the mystery, not all the way, but it kind of took out the mystery of like, okay, so like you can be a musician for a living. Like it's a thing that you can do. And I was very fortunate to kind of have a first hand experience to somebody succeeding at it. So it didn't like, I was never like worried if this was the right move. I was just like, well, if, you know, somebody in my family can do it, well, then maybe I can do it too. So that was kind of the first thing that influenced me as a player is like, oh yeah, this kind of, uh, this doesn't look so hard. And (laughs) I, I didn't, you know, that was before I kind of like, you know, I was into Metallica and Megadeth and Pantera and Corrosion of Conformity. So I, I hadn't really like gotten into the super proggy aspect of things yet. And it took me a while before I'm like, oh, whoa, this is like on a whole nother level than this like other stuff. The other stuff's good, but this stuff is like you have to, you know, you kind of have to be at a different a different level. Um, and then um, the... Uh, the, the next thing where he influenced me was, um, this was many, many years later, but um, he had offered me a position probably around like 2000, 2001 to be a guitar tech. And I didn't want the job. I was just like, I, that's way too, that's, I don't know how to do that. I'm just going to like disappoint you. And I think I came up with some like, bullshit excuse like oh I don't want to leave my girlfriend I don't want to go on tour like you know but really I was just terrified to work for like the master a couple years later I expressed regret to my aunt his wife about that I'm like man I really wish I took that 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 gig like I I feel stupid that I didn't because I was going I was like failing it and I didn't fail college but I just didn't have any interest in continue it continuing to go to college and so she's like well they always need people like I can call like right now And so like a week later, I get a call from Dream Theater's tour manager and they're like, hey, um, do you want to be our keyboard tech? And I'm like, I don't know anything about keyboards. Like I could do guitar. And he's like, we don't need a guitar tech. We need a keyboard tech. And and he's like, we'll teach you. And I'm like, I don't need to know anything about keyboards. He's like, nah, it's easy. We'll teach you. And they flew me out and I learned how to do the job in like a day. And, it, and I still didn't know what I was doing. It wasn't enough time, but it was like a trial by fire. And I just got right in there, thrown into like a huge tour, setting up keyboards and kind of like, you know, fucking up all over the place, pissing off all kinds of people because they're like, <laughs> man, this guy's here because he's the nephew. Like, fuck this guy. <laughs> but it toughened me up and it made me like, it made me move faster. And it made me realize that like, I need to kind of change how I handle things and, and kind of not be so, not take forever to do things. So I know a lot of this stuff isn't musical in in nature. Like it's just, you know, it's how he was an influence on me in other ways. He was definitely an influence on me musically. Like Awake is probably one of my top three all-time favorite records. And, uh, you know, I can, I can't just put on awake and listen to one song. I have to listen to that motherfucker from like the first song all the way to the last note. And it still has a profound effect on me. So, but I'd say that the other things that, that, that John has done for me, John Petrucci, um, that, uh, the other John in dream theater. Yeah. The, the other John. And, uh, the other stuff that he's done for me has just, that's had a a profound effect just as much as like the musical side. And there's even more too. Like if you know John as a person, like the dude just always has his shit together and he always speaks to people with 
respect and, you know, consistency. And he's just a really, really nice guy. And, you know, he, it's just like the, it's kind of like the person that I want to be, you know, and he, he just, anything he sets his mind to, he just figures out the best way to do it. So, you know, while a lot of that stuff isn't necessarily musical, that's how it's, that's how he's inspired me and how like him being in my life has affected me as a musician and as a professional. Well, to get to that level, there's so much more than just music involved. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have a certain type of, uh, state of mind and you have to have consistency with that state of mind. Like it, it, you know, he's just, he's just on top of things always. He seems like that kind of person. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Question here from Kiko Hernandez. Why a Floyd on your signature guitar, man? It's such a good guitar, but it hurts every time I change the strings. <laughs> also, I want to be you. Oh, wow. And there is a, there's a picture here of him with his face photoshopped onto you. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he really wants to be you. I'm flattered. Um, well, being me is not all it's cracked up almost, to be. Almost a similar beard. Not quite. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That's very That's a very flattering thing to hear. Um, as far as the Floyd thing goes, that's more of like a quirk of something I I liked back in the day. I I always love the feel of that that Ibanez low pro trim. It just yeah. always felt like real flat on the palm, and I always just loved the feel of those really like beefy fine tuners that came with it. And uh, I was always like a stickler about my tuning. Especially when you're in a band with three guitars, I always felt like I had to, you know, check my tuning after every song. I mean, you should do that anyways, but sometimes you can't. And so I would even like make tuning changes or just slight adjustments during the song. If I if I was hearing like things that are like not resonating with the other guitar players, I tried to compensate for it. But then like later on, I realized that it really wasn't doing anything. and It was just kind of complicating things. Um, so you'll notice on like my newer customs and the guitars that will be coming out, actually, I already have a guitar with a fixed bridge out called the JBM 10 FX. Um, and, uh, that's, that's the direction I'm moving in. So and all my Floyds are pretty much blocked except for like a couple of them. So if you were to pick up any one of my guitars, it would essentially act as a fixed bridge with some fine tuners. What's that? The, the Ibanez I think it's called a uh, Edge Three. I forget the H string yeah. has has it, and there's a six string version that uh, that Mick Thompson, the fixed bridge one, right? Yeah, yeah. Mick Thompson used to have it on his signature when he was with Ibanez. It was on the two 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 eight eight string as well, wasn't it? Yep, yep. And that's the that's that's kind of what I was going for that idea. But now I'm moving over to fixed bridges exclusively. So um, just as a little uh, insider tip that if you uh if you want one of those quirky guitars with the floyd roses get them now because they will never come back (laughs) especially when the new ones come out so uh, thank you for the tip (laughs) yes buy my book (laughs) buy my product (laughs) yeah but yeah that's that's why i did that yeah it's just kind of like an old old taste sort of thing i grew up on the low pro edge thing as well. And I always used to think that guitars never looked finished without a, a Floyd Rose on it. I agree with that. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I, I felt like having more shit there, like made me feel like I had like, like a cooler guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but also the feel of it, it, there's not another bridge that really emulates completely the feel of a low pro edge. It's like, it's almost like it's not there. Yeah. It's so flat. Like those, and those, um, the saddles, 
are large. They're like extra large yeah. and they're like, they're just flush along the whole thing. So it's just like, it's, it's really, it's a really good feeling bridge. It, it would have been really cool if they had like a string through version. Cause the, the, the biggest pain in the butt is just having to cut the ball ends off and making sure that the measurements are okay. And I found that like doing like, um, more wounds at the, on the machine head, Mm-hmm. Uh, made it stay in tune better. There was more stability because if you would just put them through and then lock them, because I also had locking tuners. People always made fun of me for that, like having locking tuners with a locking nut and a floating bridge. <laughs> uh, I had just had all these options and they weren't necessarily necessary, but sometimes I would leave the the locking nut unlocked or I would take the thing, the the, the locking parts or the, the nuts out so yeah. it was all these little like quirky things that I did. And that's, and I felt like when I was designing the guitar, I'm just like, I want people to have what I play. I don't want to do kind of like a, this is similar to what I play. I want people yeah. to actually be able to like, if they like that guitar, they can go and get it. And that's why I did that. I understand. All right. So let's see here. Question from Nick Bogdanovich. Jake, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Nick. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Jake, I love your style. <laughs> Sometimes it seems very much like, quote unquote, saying what you need to say, but often short, tasty riff morsels. Is this a particular style you picked up, like for your solos and leads or something you develop based on your own taste in music? I'd love to hear about how you get on with attacking your riff machines. Um, I, I, The best way that I can describe how... Um and this is going to sound like super pretentious. So I'm going to try not to, uh, try not to make it sound. Well, I'll just preface it saying that it's going to be super pretentious, but it's like, imagine like you have this like hunk of wood and it's just a hunk of wood. And then you start hacking away at it until something starts to take shape. And that's exactly how I approach my riff writing. I'll take like a really remedial riff some some little phrase, some like sequence of notes, and I'll start like adding and subtracting to it and changing the rhythm and just like kind of like just f- f- finding my way through the dark to like something that sounds like until I'm happy with it. And then what will end up happening is I'll take this kind of like unfinished sculpture and I'll be like, hey, Misha, hey, Mark, what do you think of this? And if they're inspired by it, they'll give me their feedback and then I can take that feedback and then I go and I start like, I continue to, to hack at it some more until like the final product takes shape. If they want a specific example. So it's like carving. Yeah, it's exactly like carving. It's just kind of like, you know, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to come up with something uh, eventually. Um, and uh, it might look like a, uh, you know, a beautiful statue or it might look like, uh, you know, an old wooden dick. Who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and either one of them has merit. Yeah, yeah. They're both useful in their own right, I guess. Yeah, I mean, a, a good example of something like this is uh, in, one, in our song called Garden in the Bones. There's this middle bridge section where it's kind of like this arpeggiated, slightly overdriven thing that I played on a Telecaster. And um, I wrote most of that how I wrote it was exactly how it appeared on the record. In fact, the 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 clean section before the drums kick back in, that's from the demo. Um, we didn't re-record it because it had like this vibe to it, this kind of like just slightly imperfect vibe. 
And um, there's one little uh, section in there that like Misha was like, all of that's good. Just change this one note to this note and play this after it. And then I think like this is this is great. And um, and that's kind of like that's not only an example of like how, you know, I chipped away at something until I came up with something that I liked, but I brought it to the guys to to get some sort of collaboration on it and they helped me with that little part of it and it you know it, it became something that I'm really proud of so that's like I'd say that's a very pure example of uh of how I would do something or write a riff for, for a song perfect so now most of these questions are about airport Jake <laughs> yeah cool <laughs> <laughs> Which we've covered. So. Which we've covered, yeah. And I think we've covered pretty much everything else, haven't we? I see one more that we can finish out on from Lawrence Truesdale-Smith. Hey, Jake, could you talk a bit about how you guys handle communication on key decisions for the band in terms of both musical and financial decisions? This is where emotion tends to get involved in my own band. And it's something we really need to work on to have a chance of thriving in the long term. So the fact that you're asking this question shows me that you are... I, I, you're at least on the right path because you've heard the old cliche saying that communication is key. Well, it is true. It is very, very true. And it's been a very, very long, difficult road for for periphery in terms of, you know, how we communicate with each other, but also the just this innate respect that we have for each other's opinions and space and contributions to the band, whether it's like administrative or musical or whatever. I think the first piece of that puzzle was to have the personnel that all believed in the the, the greatness of the whole. So everybody has it in their head that like, okay, I value my own opinion, but I also, I value the, 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 the state of the band and the, the, the health the health of the band is is greater than just my my one opinion like a relationship yeah exactly you want to think about the whole and i'd say that making sure that everybody in the group values that and there's kind of an unspoken component to that it's not something that you can just like say that it has to be that way and then everybody gets on board it's like you have to consciously come to that conclusion yourself. And I think that's why we work is because everybody just knows that like, all right, periphery is the the probably the biggest reason we can do all this other stuff, whether it's the entrepreneurial stuff or it's the gear stuff or it's the, you know, the side hustles, the various side hustles we all have going on. And keeping that as kind of like this uh, celestial object that everything else orbits around is probably the most important aspect of that. That really comes from the love of the music and the fact that we all work together as best friends, but also as co-collaborators. So there kind of has to be this interplay between like we all respect the music, which means that we all respect the band and we respect that over our own desires most of the time. Obviously, sometimes you have to fight for something you really believe in. And sometimes that happens, but when that does happen, it's kind of like, I think like the term we use is like, it's like, this is my ask. 
we can usually do anything, you know, any other way, but please, please, can we do it this way? And if people like are flexible enough, then, you know, we can, we can do that. So it's just a matter of uh, respecting the band and the business as a whole. And we have had to learn to communicate to each other. Like, John, you probably have been present for some of our band arguments and, <laughs> and kind of like how we've learned or at least how we used to interact with each other in a previous era of the band. And like, it's hard to like, remember that that was a thing. Cause like now we never really argue. Like if we argue, it's because like it's four in the morning and we're tired and like, you know, it lasts for a minute and then, you know, we buy each other coffees or something like that. But it's, it's been a long road and it's been like, you know, constant, just like, trying to realize that the other guy isn't like trying to be mean or like trying is, is acting in bad faith. It's just a matter of like, we're just in a, in certain moods and we can get past this. And also if there is an issue, we try not to do that thing that a lot of people think is the right thing to do, which is to wait for that perfect time. Sure. There are better times to speak about something important than there are others. Like you don't want to like bring up like a, a huge ban issue when you're about to go through customs, but <laughs> you know, not waiting and, and building. Unless it's who brought the meth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're taking the rap for this, man. I, I don't want anything to do with this. Letting things fester will kill a band. Resentment will kill a band, just like it will kill a relationship between two people. Taking steps to reduce that amount of resentment and to show your peers that you care about them is super important. Because if you don't take that time to say like, hey, man, I care about you and I know we're fighting or I know we have a disagreement, but I don't want I don't want the the resentment to build up between us. And, you know, obviously it's not always said with that amount of directness, but that's what's implied. And I think that's the reason that we've been able to not kill each other and not break up and, and, you know, stay together and get healthier as a band because we, we respect each other that much. And, uh, I'd say that if it's becoming a persistent problem in your own group, I'm not saying to fire people who are troublesome, but it it may be a personnel issue and uh it, it, it's something to look at i think that was a good uh good answer it was jake thank you for coming on it's been a pleasure finally getting to talk to you yeah yeah likewise i i, I was looking forward to it um since you guys asked me i like that you guys have such a high quality podcast because everybody wants to have a podcast. It's like the new <laughs> let's start a band. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you just kind of throw and go, but you guys like do it right. You guys, you know, it's, it's high quality and it, you guys ask good questions and, and it's just, it's really fun to talk to you guys. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it. And, uh, I mean, helps that you're a good guest. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> let's hear more airport Jake next time. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we, I can get like one of the guys, I could be like, all right, we're going to leave for the airport in two months. I'm going to forget about this by then, but <laughs> set a reminder in your phone to start filming and then you can get some candid shots of me being a prickhead. So oh, maybe we just need to do this podcast next time you're at the airport. Yeah, yeah. I could, we could, do, we, we could do like a live stream with like a video feed and we could, I could like um, do like a director's commentary. <laughs> and here's where I tell her that she can shove this Axe Effects up her hoo-ha. But um <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's that's a fun idea. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm writing that one down. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, dude. Have a great uh, rest of your day, and uh, 
pandemic. Yeah, yeah. You guys too. Stay safe. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy your pandemic. I will. I will do the best that I can. And another member of Periphery is a good guest. Yeah. Crazy. They're all uh, very decent people, aren't they? Yeah. It's funny. You guys say decent. Here, decent means like average and like whatever. (laughs) But in Australia, if you're like your best mate, you call them a cunt. (laughs) True. True, true. Yeah. And none of the none of the members of periphery have been cunts so far. Well, it depends. In Australia, they're good cunts, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I know people who have broken bones or like hurt themselves in a way that got in the way of their guitar playing and then basically just quit. Yeah. And Jake found a positive in that, in just the fact that it's what he wanted to do. And he just got got through it. Well, you know, one of the things that is super common with guitar players, not, you know, falling off of a ladder and fucking annihilating your finger, but a lot get tendonitis and carpal tunnel and use that as a reason to just stop. When in reality, almost every really good guitar player I know has had that at some point and found a way to just keep going. It's just about finding a way, isn't it? It's like that that Jurassic Park saying, life finds a way. You just have to if it find. Wants to. Yeah, you, if you want to, yeah, you just have to find the way. And you know, I'm, I remember Jake's playing well. You know, when we toured with Periphery back in 2011, when and I, I remember that moment when he injured his finger, and I just remember when he came back to that tour. And I think the show that he came back to was uh, what was the name of the venue? I think it used to be called like Jacks in. Um, I want to say in Virginia. Yeah, in Virginia. Yeah, that was the first show back. And I just remember watching him play and it was like, he fucking nailed it. Do you know what I mean? Like after not playing for X amount of weeks and just working as hard as he could. And it was, it was inspiring. Do you know what I mean? Because that is a really big obstacle to go past, especially when you've broken a finger on your fretting hand as severely as he did. Goes to show that with the right discipline practice approach, you can overcome just about anything on the instrument. Yeah, and that, and that's coming from someone like, you know, Jake, he really does doubt his skill level. Yeah, but who doesn't? Yeah, I guess to a degree. Yeah, I guess, yeah. yeah you're probably right, apart from the weirdos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you know a single great guitar player that doesn't doubt their skill level? I don't. I don't, no. Yeah, so, but he did it anyways. The thing that I've noticed is that with uh, with these pros, they doubt their skill level, but then they ignore that doubt and just do their thing anyways. They all, there's always something that can be done to overcome it. There's a voice, you know, like the voice on your shoulder telling you just to get the fuck on with it. Yeah. And I guess one of the things that gets in the way for people who are not pros yet is having that voice combined with not knowing what to do in what order, which uh, actually on Riff Heart is uh, one of the things that we kind of took care of for them yeah. with the schedule. Yeah, it's just about having that discipline and focusing on the correct things to improve your playing. And I think that that is part of the problem that a lot of the time people don't really know what they want to get better at. Because, you know, there is is a lot of options. Oh, yeah, there's like a million things you could focus on. But the one thing that you're not going to get away with is not being good at rhythm. (laughs) And just as an example, the first time you ever go to jam with a drummer, you do realize just how bad you are at the instrument. Or the first time you try to record yourself to a click. And that too, yep. Yeah, so tell us about the schedule. Why does it work for people? And what is it? The schedule is, um, it basically takes all the exercises from Riffard, and that's stuff from the downpicking gym, which focuses on coordination between the left and right hand. It takes some of the riff dissections of Monuments and Flux Conduct songs, um, and it also takes 
riffs from other songs focusing on different areas of playing and it basically puts it into an easy to digest formula that you can follow every single day obviously including days off because you know you have muscles in your arms and wrists and and uh fingers that also need time off much like if you were going to the gym and um it basically puts it into a schedule so you can get used to doing it every day so it becomes part of routine but it's focusing on the correct attributes that will actually make you a better guitar player yeah because man one thing that people do which is really dumb is spend way too long practicing things that don't make them that much better yeah and then don't understand why they're not getting better a lot of people like to focus on um the things that look impressive to other people rather than well other guitar players mainly but um Ultimately, yes, you can get good at those skill sets. And obviously, there will be a time and a place where it is good to use that skill set. But ultimately, if you suck at rhythm, then it doesn't matter how good you are at the other skill sets because fundamentally, those skill sets aren't going to be as good as they can be without the solid rhythm enforcing it. Correct. And the schedule lays out a way to go after it every day that you want to practice week after week after week, especially for those people who might have like a day job and a family and um, or school or whatever, whatever it is in their real lives that impose time on their day that leaves a limited amount of time for guitar playing. I mean, that's when it becomes even more important to dedicate yourself to the right things. Like when you only have half an hour or you only have 45 minutes, you want to make sure that those 30 minutes or those 20 minutes or 45, whatever it is, are dedicated to the exact right thing that you make the absolute most of that time exactly and we had them with the schedule we do have a shortened version which is 20 to 30 minutes we have a medium uh, length um, workout and also uh, a longer workout and it all can go down to how much time you can actually dedicate um, but yeah just think about those times when you're sat in front of your tv you sat there for 20 minutes and you're not doing anything apart from sort of you know slouching and uh, you could be playing your instrument and this is a way to do it and you should see it as that's the watching the television is a reward for doing this and at the same time you're also getting much better at your instrument which is ultimately why you would come to riffhard that's right everybody so the schedule at riffhard.com check it out and brown it's been a pleasure we'll talk to you next week been a pleasure mate thanks for listening to the riffhard podcast we'll see you next week